to the phlegm cast. <laughs> if we phlegm, we phlegm. <laughs> I, uh, I am now de-phlegmed. <laughs> Christy, how's your phlegm? Yeah, my, my phlegm is non-existent for the moment. Uh, well, that's good. I thought I heard something else, but I could I, I could have swore I heard another voice there for a minute, but I think it might have just been uh, <laughs> the wind. Weird. I said that while I was taking a drink because I thought you would keep talking for longer. <laughs> How dare you? You set me up. Uh, who's that? A ghost. A spooky ghost. Um, a Halloween ghost. Yes, who is, who is way early. Speaking of way early. Oh, no, no, we can't talk about that, can we? It's a surprise. Christy, the way early for Halloween surprise? I can't even talk about it. Because people will hear it. It's not like a huge surprise, but it's kind of a surprise, I guess. Let's just say that uh, Christy is way, way, way early prepared for Halloween right now. I think that the, Things uh... are afoot, and because it's COVID and I assign myself projects constantly, I'm already almost complete with the surprise it's actually weird you just said something and it totally occurs to me like you said because it's covid and i was like oh covid isn't like just a disease anymore it's a season or like uh like it's a, a pandemic it's been and like the reaction to it yeah. <laughs> yeah but it's like an age now it's like a it's it's moved beyond just being a thing people have and it's like a a, a whole like age of in my in my head i think of it as covid times like in the future we will be like during covid times yeah when we when we all crawl out of the cave and wipe the jam off our mouths and blink our <laughs> eyes into the sun and we'll go ah oh, the covid times have ended and oh it's outside again Ooh. i'm really stuck on the way that you two were talking about whatever is way early and it being halloween related the idea that christy is sitting under a sheet with two holes cut out <laughs> for her eyes i'm ready now she's just in like, my room dressed as a ghost <laughs> she's in a room in the dark with a candle lit going i can't wait for trick-or-treat <laughs> <laughs> Uh, welcome back to the show, Kirsten. Thank you. Um, it's, it feels weird to do like formal show things like "Welcome to the show." It's, like, feels... Well, especially because it took us a half hour to get going today, yeah. <laughs> and so now yeah, it's, we've it, already been talking weird... for thirty minutes. Yeah, a whole twenty minutes of that was just getting the phlegm out, but I think we're I think we finally <laughs> got it. <laughs> now you're making me want to clear my throat again. You should do it. Do it. On, do it on air. Talking about phlegm. No, no. <laughs> now I'm thinking about the phlegm. <laughs> the more you think about it, the worse the it's going phlegm. to be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one cool thing is that I am now recording, as everyone can hear from the absence of dog sounds usually when we do remote episodes i'd be in the living room with the hooligans uh, uh. and dave would be in his office but now i am in my redone craft room slash guest room yeah in the comfiest papa san chair known to man with a blanket on top of me i couldn't be more comfortable <laughs> i'm so cozy you're like wrapped up you're she like is. a little egg you're like ten yeah. degrees away from being fully horizontal and enveloped I'm, in I'm basically horizontal the yeah. way this chair is set up and I have a footrest, so I'm just laying here talking on the podcast. It's great. Yeah. It's uh, very uh nineteen ninety-eight laying on your bed talking on the phone to your friends. Oh yeah. yeah. Like twirling the I, phone cable in your finger. Yep. I demand these conditions for all podcasts. <laughs> 
that I do now. <laughs> you know, I think that could be arranged. I think just we... drag the Papa San chair downstairs. <laughs> uh, it, it is incredibly comfy. That's like one of those like handful of chairs that are just like uh, like it's it's the cushion is like all like fur feeling and like really mm-hmm. it's like cool to the touch kind of and. So like years ago when I was still living in my mom's basement, I I got it in my head that like all I had down there was my bed and I didn't have like a chair to sit in. So I was like, you know what I need? A Papa San chair right now. I think I was having a bad time. Like <laughs> in a bad place. <laughs> we'll mentally. fix my seasonal crippling depression. Right. Uh, Papa San. So yeah. I posted something on Facebook about how I want a Papa San chair. But did no work to actually look for one. You don't have to. You and just put it out into the universe. <laughs> right. My stepbrother answered the call. He's like, there's totally one available on Craigslist right now. And so I looked and it was like someone nearby and we picked it up. It didn't come with like the the cushions or anything, but she was moving across the country and didn't want to lug a papa san chair with her so i bought it off her for like 50 bucks and then i bought the cushions on sale and so i think i spent like 150 bucks total for the comfiest chair i feel like it's best not to get soft goods from strangers on facebook anyway yeah you know it's just anything (laughs) plush and absorbent yeah i don't whatever spills and grime and you can you can bug bomb a frame for a papa san chair in a way that you can't yeah yeah anything that can host like an army of insects <laughs> in my head does <laughs> yeah i don't want i don't want that and and fabric holds smells and yeah all kinds of things that you just don't want it's like a like a four-year-old blob of mac and cheese that's just like smushed <laughs> into the bottom of it like and and God forbid someone has cats that decided to pee on it, and you, yeah. then it's got it's got pet pee smell and uh, yeah. smoke smell if they happen to smoke around it once. Can you imagine the guy though that sits in that chair smoking cigars? Who even is that guy? <laughs> hey, he wears don't... he mo- he wears a smoking jacket. Oh sure, definitely. He's... And sometimes a monocle when he's feeling sassy. <laughs> he's probably wearing a smoking jacket and nothing else. That's my guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, How do you wear a smoking jacket? <laughs> <laughs> With other clothing, typically, I think. <laughs> I don't know. You're doing it wrong. Christy is of the Hugh Hefner variety of smoking jackets, and exactly. Dave is from the, like, Sherlock Holmes Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. This this is all you need to know about us. Uh, it's so funny you mentioned that because our new hit series Hef and Sherlock is coming to the WB this fall. Oh my god! I wish I wrote that. Uh, Let's write it. I gotta put it on my. Let's workshop this. The copyright my... is out now because you published this, and so I think that that gets you some some limited rights. You're so if right. You hurry, You're you right. Can... We could prove this is our idea. I've, uh, so uh, yeah. we'll, we'll have to add this to I, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the show but like a buddy of mine uh, that I used to work with and I had this like all these ideas for fake TV shows and we always wanted <laughs> like well we didn't want to make them but we just like wanted to like build out a program schedule of bizarre shows and I think my favorite one was a show called Baby Vet and it's a veterinarian <laughs> that is actually a baby and like no one around seems to notice or they like just like don't acknowledge that the baby vet is a baby vet. And the theme song is 
who is a baby that's also a vet. It's baby vet. Wham. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm wasting a lot of time talking about baby vet. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. I I love the idea of baby vet. Yeah. Um, So half the reason of me saying I'm in the craft room is that the craft room is redone. Yay. Yeah. We finished our um a chore of uh, painting and rearranging and cleaning and, and I, I we still have a lot of work to do in here but i got some cool shelves it's like floating bookshelves and it's looking really nice and now i can actually be in here yeah cool it's <laughs> excites no one but me but I, that's okay you know it's, it's hard... hard to actually complete a home renovation project when you do it by yourself, as opposed to getting to 85% and going, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. That's basically that's where we got. Cause we like everything <laughs> we've ever done in this house. We did so good at, at the start. So like one day started off real gung ho and it's like, we put down two coats of primer and like a whole coat of paint around the everything. And then we're like, okay, we'll let it dry. And we'll do that second coat. And then it was just like, nope. And then like two weeks later, we're putting down Ew. the second coat. It wasn't that long. It was the next week. It was. I think it was a week and a half. No, it wasn't. It was the next week. Are you sure? Yes. Yeah, well, if you say so. It was this the next Goose week. This is podcast, the podcast where Dave and Christy argue about when they painted. <laughs> yep. We, this is the drama <laughs> you tune in for. Yes, the domestic trivial drama. <laughs> That just gets people it's on the bliss. edge of their Our seats. Our relationship is pure bliss. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> we don't ever constantly argue about things that don't matter, like when something that definitely happened happened. Right. Uh, but yeah, um, it did take us a while, though. It did, but it's done, and it's awesome, and I love it. And uh, you know what? It's making me feel like doing though. Uh, boy, take a victory lap. Doing a craft? Do, yeah, doing Playing a craft. a game. <laughs> See, doing a craft made more sense. I thought you were going to, you know, maybe like uh, knit something or. Uh, on live on the podcast for everyone to hear. <laughs> oh, man. That's it. Okay. If we ever do a fundraiser episode, you're going to be live knitting something. It's a knit Just the clicking of knitting needles. Yeah, we'll mic I could it up. be doing that right now. <laughs> Put the microphone really, really close to your hands and just have that like, like, kind of like, like little clicky. Can you hear that? Uh, it's probably not I can. I'm, I'm super tempted to grab my knitting needles and just start going. Um, <laughs> uh... But no, I thought we could play a game. Yeah, okay. I mean... <laughs> did you say yeet? yeet. <laughs> I, I, I didn't. No, sorry. I was I was defleming. I apologize. Uh, yeah, that sounds good. All right. What do you want to play? Well, I thought we'd play uh, a little game called Trues and Fnews. You mean to tell me? You mean to tell me why you wouldn't happen to mean? It's time for Trues and Fnews. Everyone's playing. Everyone's playing. Famous game. Famous game. The game that's taking the internet by storm. It's time for Trues and Fnews. A Merv Griffin production. Boop doop doop doop. Boop doop doop doop.
poop, doop, doop, doop. Yeah, we don't have the music on here. We do this live. I have to cut that in later. <laughs> no, no, please continue. You mean to tell me? You mean to tell me? You mean to tell me? No, no, Dave. Oh my god. <laughs> we could just do it live. We've TJ's going to have to make us a new. We used to do that all the time. That's why he made us the compilation. <laughs> well, now he's going to make us a new compilation. <laughs> the thing is, we've never done the song live. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but it's way too hard, so let's not and say we did. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, well, Christy, since you proposed the game, I think it is incumbent upon you to explain how to play the game. All right. I, You know, that seems fair. I just kind of assumed you two knew how to play it by now, but... No. All right. <laughs> well, Truth and Snooze is a game, brand new game, sweeping the nation internet sensation, in which I give you three news headlines, two which are false or fnooze, one is true, the truth, and you're going to tell me which is which. Uh, I think I can do that. I think I followed <laughs> what you just said. It's such a new idea. I really just, I guess we'll just have to play and I'll learn as we go along. It doesn't matter how many times I play this game. Every time I'm hosting it, I block out the fact that I have to do the intro, and then I panic every time. <laughs> <laughs> you did. You did fine. I, don't know what you're I, about. I know it's. It, I work well under pressure. Actually, it's already been um, so long. I forget. Can you tell me again how we play Truth and <laughs> News? I already forget how to do it. Truth and News is a game, a fun little game, an internet game sweeping oh. the nation in which I will give you three news headlines. Two will be false. The news, one is true, the truth, and you're gonna tell me which is which. You know what? That sounds familiar. I think you. Yeah, that sounds like what you said the first time. So. It's almost exactly what I just <laughs> said ten seconds ago. Okay, great. Well, I'm everybody listening is frantically checking to see if they accidentally rewound. <laughs> yeah, like, oh shit, did I bump it? No, no. <laughs> bump it. Bump it. <laughs> All uh, right. Let's play. Are the you game. ready for the first one? Let's do it. All right. Uh, number one. Rebel bandits have been stealing Confederate flags on display in Heflin, Alabama. Locals cry hate crime and demand action. Oh, God, that's too real. Like, I'm almost like, you don't even have to read the other two. (laughs) 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 Number two. Man in pointing guns at penis Facebook group shoots self in penis, becomes a hero in group. <laughs> that was words that I recognize. Those are certainly oh, all words. Hold on a minute. I just want to clear. <laughs> so you're saying the Facebook group dedicated to pointing guns at penises? Yes. Features now a legend who shot his penis off, and people are celebrating him. Yes. Wow. <clears throat> Number three. <laughs> what a rascal. Iowa man stole $500 worth of electronics from Walmart and made his getaway in a motorized scooter. <laughs> what a rascal. I see what I see what someone did there. Some oh. genius. <laughs> Some genius journalist, no doubt. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> oh, and for the recap. Yeah, let's hear him again. Wow. Number one. Rebel bandits have been stealing Confederate flags on display in Heflin, Alabama. Locals cry hate crime and demand action. Oh, my God. 
Number two, man in pointing guns at penis Facebook group shoots self in penis, becomes a hero in group. And number three, what a rascal. Iowa man stole $500 worth of electronics from Walmart and made his getaway in a motorized scooter. <laughs> okay. I'm going to get I'm going to I'm going to attempt to get inside your head a little bit. All right. Or maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. Kirsten, do you want to you want to like uh suss this one out or do you want to just kind of give our votes and 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 see and see later why we thought what You we can thought. give your votes and then explain why you gave your votes. Okay. That would just be crazy talk. That's backwards. <laughs> no. Um well, okay. I really, I wish that Christy could provide her own summaries of each of these the way that she does when you deliver them. Because yeah, right. I can never come up with them. And I'm positive that, A, there's a really good, like, rebels angry at other rebels joke about, like, calling someone a rebel for stealing a Confederate flag, which yeah. was supposedly the rebel army. Re- I don't know rebel where it scum. is. Though. Something about rebel scum for sure. <laughs> Um, the thing and is, I'm... <laughs> when I write when I write these, there is definitely a backstory for all of them. So I totally could. <laughs> you know what, Kirsten? It seems like you're kind of on a roll. Why don't we get your summaries? Um, I think that the second one has a joke in there somewhere about like, of course, this is the one thing, the one Facebook group that doesn't get zucked with no warning <laughs> is the one where people are. <laughs> taking pictures of the uh, I assume themselves or maybe other people pointing firearms at phallic body parts I don't know Um, that's what I would be fine with having taken down but I'm not in charge of Facebook so they didn't ask me that one should be nuked immediately and then the third one I really thought even though you said rascal at first I pictured like um I think it's like a Polaris razor, this like farm ATV, basically. (laughs) (laughs) This is this is my brain. Um, I immediately started picturing that, which I also correlate with the remix of Old Town Road that has the Walmart yodel kid in it. Um, I forget his actual name because he says hop up on my razor. And a lot of people thought that he meant the razor scooter. And it's actually like a piece of it's not really farm equipment. It's an ATV, but typically used on farms. Anyway, um, (laughs) even though you said rascal, I pictured that kid just like popping a sick wheelie on his razor, like (laughs) scooting away. So I'd like that version of it to be true, really. Yeah, that's Um, that's a pretty great version. My mom in very suburban Austin town has like a couple people in her neighborhood that are clearly like moved to the suburbs from out in the country and won't give up parts of their lives. And so they will ride their like four wheelers up and down the road, which is illegal and super annoying. And that's what I think of when I think of like stealing (laughs) from Walmart and (laughs) riding away. I um one of my most blessed memories of the last year is that uh, I spent Christmas in South Dakota and I had one big request living in a place where everything is very small because it's very dense. I was like, please take me to your largest mixed goods store. I want to look at shelves full of things because this just isn't really present in my life. And somebody, some amazing like stout strong person drove one of those to the fleet farm like with a little plastic covering over it and those are not like they're a fully exposed not quite vehicle most of the time and i was just like yeah bad props to whoever parked that here because it was by (laughs) itself in a parking space like it was not towed (laughs) i was like all right we can get away with a lot in like rural areas yeah that's true 
I so I, your guess is yeah I have a guess I begrudgingly have to say a because I mean it's it's possible <laughs> that this is not an exact variant that has happened but it's very reflective of a lot of things that have been happening I believe yeah right okay so I think I'm about to I'm choosing the same thing and I think I'm about to be wrong as I do it I don't know why I'm like because if, you can still change it I know you haven't said it yet but it's like I'm doing one of those things where I'm like I have a reason, and I'm the longer I think about it, I'll just flip around on it. So I'm I'm just gonna stick with my gut here and say I think that A is true, and I'll tell you, <laughs> I'm gonna walk you through this. I also thought because of the way you said you rascal, <laughs> that I thought you had to have written C because you love that you wrote you rascal. But then now I'm thinking <laughs> you didn't maybe write it. You just really liked that that's what it said. She's a very accomplished thespian. And she's just using <laughs> yes. the material she was given. Yes, with a very actory affectation. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> you rascal, you. Um, but yeah, I'm guessing A2, and I bet it's C. <laughs> All right, you're both wrong. No! It has to be. You're C. both wrong. Please tell eh. me. No. Number two. No. Uh. <laughs> no. No. Is the correct one. You have to. Now well, I do have to tell you. That is what said. happens when you point guns at things. Yes. I. So, like I said, there's always a backstory to the ones I make up. Um, number one, whenever I use a location, I like to use a believable location. Heflin, Alabama is a place that is one of the holdouts of the Confederate flag. Mm. And I did read an article about a, the guy who has a little store that has been selling out of Confederate flags after the like whole Confederate flag thing recently. Mm. Um, and he's a racist person as one can expect who defends his racism by saying he has a black friend and then in awesome. the same breath saying i don't like i don't like the races mixing but i don't talk about that to a reporter <laughs> well you just said so that's that's heflin alabama but the idea of rebel bandits was that it was uh, Antifa, an Antifa mother-daughter team who was going around in the dead of night and stealing people's uh, Confederate flags as soon as they put them up. You really did. Uh, you imagined people doing it. Yeah, that's. I always have a backstory. Um, Back of the world building. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I'm impressed. I play D and D. Let me get to this article about the shooting the, of the. You have to. <laughs> you, I can't. I can no longer wait to figure out why some man shot himself in the penis. Oh, he was pointing his gun at it. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have more questions. That's basically, that's basically what it is. But uh, here, let me. Yep. Um. Wow. Oh, God. They start the article with, this dude is nuts. Oh, my Aww. God. It's, it's not worse than, what a rascal. <laughs> um, and it says, a man in a Facebook group dedicated solely to pointing loaded guns at one's genitalia. Loaded? Shot they specified loaded? Wow. The article specifies loaded. Um, shot himself... In the penis and testicles and <laughs> testicles, guys. 
The unidentified San Diego man is a member of the loaded guns pointed at. It says it. It says penis. <laughs> I think it's specifically balls and penis. Uh, or it could just be the very internet thing of putting the like B emoji. It could just be penis. Yeah. Yeah. Penis, definitely. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe to try to avoid getting zucked. Uh, Facebook group, according to Vice, the group is used mainly to anger more responsible gun owners with people sharing pictures of loaded guns pointed at their penises with their fingers hovering over the trigger. Um, but this man's ballsy actions cost him when he actually pulled the trigger, Vice reported. He posted a video to the group with himself holding a 1911 handgun to his junk before the gun discharged. This article used the term junk. Wow. Um, initially the man thought he just grazed himself, but he actually shot himself through with an entry and exit wound, according to Vice. He was treated for his injuries at a hospital and even went to work the next day. Oh, Dave, if you shot yourself in the dick, would you go to work the next day? I don't even care if I got time to take off. There's no way I'm marching into the, the, the workplace. I'm not explaining to anyone that I did that. Not filing that HR report for the leave of absence and, yeah. and putting in the reason. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I need uh, some medical I, I'll time I'll just off. tell them I, I was shot. I am not telling them the details. <laughs> I sustained a gunshot wound. A self-inflicted injury. Um, the other Ooh. members of Loaded Guns Pointed at Benis have elevated the injured man to an admin in the group and feted him as a king in numerous memes. The man's original video has since been deleted. Oh, it's out there. So I gotta not find only, it now. Not oh. only did he do this, he posted the video in there after doing it. <laughs> this is insane. I, I'm like, okay. You know, I've been, I've been the admin of facebook groups in the past and i didn't have to make a blood sacrifice to do it that's, that's my input. yeah but i think that they yeah. kind of they did kind of usually you just volunteer <laughs> I, I sort of feel like that's making the best of a bad situation for a guy like uh well we kind of put you in this situation i guess you could be an admin now i mean he chose to hold the gun at his penis and to hover <laughs> his finger over the trigger that's true and to load the gun loaded. um why did they have to be loaded guns that's because... why i was startled when they said load it because there is some degree of like oh no unfortunate accident it, it was loaded when they're still <laughs> you know defying the main principles of like not pointing a gun at anything you don't want to shoot and treating every weapon like it's loaded but um Nope. It becomes more and They're more difficult fate. to make excuses. <laughs> tempting fate at its finest. I, um, I cannot yeah. believe that's uh, also, real. Also, big thanks to Chris Brady, friend of the podcast, who gave me that news quiz suggestion. Oh, I remember um, he was giving you a suggestion and I didn't know what it was. He gave it to me like a month ago, but I haven't done the news quiz until now. And I was like, well, I have to use it. So, yeah. Oh, my God. I seriously yeah, can't so believe this, it. Let me see when this article was from, if I can. Uh, <laughs> August 13th is when it was from. <laughs> I just Every time I think <clears throat> I've heard the dumbest thing, I hear a dumber thing. A lot of times, thanks to this news quiz. <laughs> Wow. Okay. I'm genuinely shocked. I really didn't think that could possibly be real. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed this moment. <sighs> I uh I haven't it was a that hard successful, 
news quiz and I stumped you both. Yeah, you did. Good job. You win. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you like, Okay, so like immediately I thought I have to see this and the more I think about it I'm like I cannot I don't I like I feel like I need to know what his reaction was. But I really also don't want to. I so I I get the feeling that like so he thought he grazed himself at first. So I get the feeling he was just like, oh shit, and he posted the video, and then he was like, wait, <laughs> imagine, <laughs> imagine good. not being sure if you shot yourself in the penis. Like imagine yeah, not being sure. And balls, they're very specific. Also balls. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, My mistake. Yeah. I feel like you'd know, right? Would you know? Or is it just like pain <laughs> and you're like, like I, I have... don't know where it's coming from? Yeah. yeah, it's not like I have extensive experience in like immediately treating gunshot wounds, <laughs> but I have heard that as a pretty common, like shock is a big thing, right? And yeah, your brain controls your, your pain pathways. And I think that maybe uh, the the strength of a pain reaction to that would be so much that maybe at first it wouldn't really register yeah yeah that's fair like you you basically overwhelmed and you're just like something's wrong not sure where it is (laughs) and also like so it's a sensitive area (laughs) it doesn't take that much that much of a oh my god (laughs) kirsten just sent us the the link of a bunch of these pictures it's a different article from Vice titled Here's Why Men Are Pointing Loaded Guns at Their Crotches. And it does explain to me um, why in particular it's loaded. And it basically boils down to yet another like thing the internet has brought us, right? Of, mm-hmm. well, all of those gun nerds are so worried about safety and trigger control and not putting your finger on the trigger when it's loaded and you're pointing it at yourself. <laughs> they like safety. Those nerds will show them. Yeah. And uh, Vice describes it as like a shibboleth among gun owners that makes a lot of sense to me unfortunately i think i recognize like like similar things all the time just people trying to you know show off one way or another how tough they are like you know it's one of those like oh those snowflakes (laughs) they're too worried about things kind of mentalities of like well but there's like reasons they're actually this is a big deal for them, and it's that it's very easy to shoot yourself in the dick and balls if you do. I'm this. just picturing like, what if a what if a door knocker shows up the day you're in your bedroom taking this picture and startles you because you are well. But I guess I'm one of the losers <laughs> that they would point a gun at themselves to own. So, wow, uh, the my thing concern is, only proves are, their point. There's very valid concern, <laughs> and them shooting themselves. It proves our point so they have a it's all even they have an in language that i didn't know about and this vice article points to the idea that there are subcultures and one of them is fuds like f-u-d-d-s like elmer fudd and fuds are like old like gun nuts who like have been around a long time like the like they, and they hate the normal people they call themselves fuds <laughs> Interesting, considering that Bugs Bunny calling Elmer Fudd a Nimrod is why we think Nimrod is an insult, and we use it that way now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's uh, I remember. I don't what, s- what does Nimrod actually mean? Um, I think that it was one of like many. I'll Google it's, 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 right now. It's a Clicky hunter clack, thing. Clicky yeah, I, I, I forgot. First I forgot about it. Mention of Nimrod is in the Table of Nations, described as the son of Kush or Kush. I don't know. 
Depends on how 420 <laughs> friendly with it you are. <laughs> C-U-S-H, grandson of Ham and great-grandson of Noah and is a mighty one in the earth and a mighty hunter before the Lord. So that's what it was. And Bugs Bunny says, you Nimrod. And then everybody was like, that must mean stupid idiot. <laughs> yeah, right. Not a badass that's hunter. That's really funny. Like, Cartoons uh... affecting language is fantastic. <laughs> you Nimrod. Uh, that's so funny how completely it's like, different that it's is. It's actually a really clever biblical reference, and now it means stupid. Yeah, it's also like it's kind of like calling him a brute in a way. It's like you're like a big dummy with a gun is what he's calling him, you know. But like, uh, you famous hunter, <laughs> you badass. <laughs> that's really funny. Uh, well, this, I I hope that guy's penis is okay. I guess, but maybe he learned a lesson. I'm okay with whatever <laughs> happened to his penis, just being what it is. <laughs> I mean, he went to work the next day. He he seems fine. With or without a penis, he made it to work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, arguably, there are very few professions in which that's a necessary yeah right to bring with you to the workplace. So. Yeah, certainly right. not none, but very few. I, in the future, when I run my own business, I'm going to demand that everyone leave their genitals at home. There's no place for them in the workplace. Just detach them and put them in the chamber. You don't need to. You don't need to bring them here. The chamber. Everyone has a genital chamber. A genital safe. It's like it's like a little UV dome that you put your genitals in. Just keep them safe. It revitalizes them. Yeah. This has gone to a weird place. We Is it time for a break? We ought to just stop yeah, right now. <laughs> um, yeah good job christy you stumped uh both of us um let's take a quick break and get our heads back together um, and we'll uh and we'll we'll be back in a minute all right yeah right bye We're back. Yep. It. Uh, uh, gotten... So who's hosting this episode, Dave? You were you were doing research, right? You had something, right? Yeah, right. So I brought the collected works of Dr. Seuss, and I was hoping to read them all in real time. <laughs> and then, <laughs> while I'm at it, kind of offer a spicy take. I don't know if you guys are down for that. I uh, I only prepared for a straight. 60 I don't know hours. if you know this, but Dr. Seuss didn't even like kids. <laughs> is that is that true? Yep. Wow. Really. I mean, yeah, it's not what he—it's not what he intended to do with his life. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I like more though the idea that like Dr. <laughs> Seuss like famously hated children. <laughs> um, uh, but no, no, I got nothing. But boy, I sure hope, Kirsten, that you maybe have an episode here, or otherwise we've wasted a whole bunch of time. Well, I might. I guess it's up to time and it unfurling to tell me if I really have a, an episode of inequality. But to start it off, I do have something for Dave specifically. Oh so I had to kind of reserve this topic with Christy, right, to make sure that one of you didn't do it and that it wasn't on the list and things like that. Or if it was on the list, to take it off the list. Mm -hmm. So she has to know what I'm about to talk about, but you don't. Uh, so right. to start it. 
I have some things that I'd like to read to you. And I'd like you to kind of just give me, you know how personality exams are like, largely disagree, slightly disagree, mm. neither agree nor disagree. Kind of just give me that Okay. about how you feel about them. Okay. All right. And then I'll tell you what it is that oh I'm going to talk about. Are we going to like to analyze my personality? Am I going about to like learn something about myself and not like it? <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe you'll like it. All right. Um, so my first one. Start in bold. Um, technology has led to widespread psychological suffering in the third world to physical suffering as well and has inflicted severe damage to the natural world. Huh. Uh... <laughs> That's really hard to just be like yes or no or like kind of or not kind of. But I, I, would, I would say a subtle agree. I'd put that at like a four out of five. Okay. I can also give my honest my honest yeah. opinion as well, even you're though I little, know. You're a little influenced, but yeah. Dave is our pure... I'll let Dave answer first, for sure, okay. but I can also give yeah. mine. I would say it's like... I, I would say it's... It's partly true, but it's like a mitigating circumstance, right? It's not like a cut and dry because of the internet or because of technology. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um... <laughs> The next one is leftists taken as, um, to mean basically like in the United States political spectrum, leftists mm. say that they hate the West because it is warlike, imperialistic, sexist, ethnocentric, and so forth. But when these same faults appear in socialist countries or in primitive cultures, they find excuses for them. Ooh. Yeah, okay, so, like, I kind of find myself on the left, but I kind of think that's also true. I think that's true of everybody. Like, plenty of people uh, ignore faults and the things that they, like, are warm to and, you know, are quick to yeah. point out. So I I think I would also agree with that. I'm not a strong agree, though, because I don't think that's, like, universal. But I think it's a tendency. So, yeah, that's another four. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Okay. And no, I mean, I agree with what Dave is saying, not yeah, the concept. No. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't a, oh, okay. That was a, okay, good. Second down, third to go. Uh, <laughs> third is, um, there is good reason to believe that primitive man suffered from less stress and frustration and was better satisfied with his way of life than modern man is. That's a, that's a disagree. That's a disagree. Yeah, that's a strongly disagree. I, I think that's like a, a tendency we have to like, because we live where we are and how we are, we're like, our, our problems are our problems. But you don't really think about Maslow's hierarchy stuff and the, in, you know, like, like, like I'm not, I'm not constantly having to kill something to eat it. Uh, and I'm not like constantly having to like, uh, be careful where I sleep so that uh, animals don't eat me. There's a whole lot of things that like, yeah. Yeah, like it's, yeah. it would be tempting to say, like, agree in some ways, but I think that's a. That, it, that actually might like, be a strong disagree, actually. It's like this simpler life fallacy that, like, oh, they only had to worry about certain things. And so it's a simpler life. They were less stressed. Okay, sure. But their stresses about those things were very strong. Like Dave said, like, not being eaten by animals. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think they were less stressed. They were more stressed about keeping themselves alive. Yeah, and they also didn't know why. Do you think that it was happen. more stress, more intermittently, perhaps, whereas we have a lower degree of stress most days? Uh, this is me. This is not a, yeah. a specific quote. I think that's. 
I think it's a different kind of stress and maybe diff- ver- different varying levels, but I don't think it's like better or worse. Okay. Yeah, and that's the thing that like what we call stress is like a kind of like psychological pain that is like separate from like like outright like terror and exhaustion and like the pain of yeah. living, you know, like That walks me into my next one, which is a bit of a variant. The statement is, it is fair to attribute the social and psychological problems of modern society to the fact that society requires people to live under conditions radically different from those under which the human race evolved. I think that's the kind of social stress. It is fair to attribute the social and psychological problems of modern society to the fact that society (laughs) requires people to live under conditions that are radically different from from those under which the human race evolved. This is kind of the theory of we have anxiety because we were used to being chased and now nothing is chasing us, so we never resolve it. That kind of thinking. Hmm. That's an interesting question. I um I actually think that like sort of like undercuts our adaptability, and so I'm not sure if I totally agree. Because I think that like like we it's I don't know yeah like yes the conditions that we live in are so different than like what we're like biologically uh kind of like built for but then like there's this sort of like plasticity of the brain where we can adapt to like all kinds of like incredibly overwhelmingly stressful situations and still find a way to like like some people still find a way to just not be stressed in the middle of like really awful ways of living so I don't know I'm like a slight we disagree. Lost uh, do we lose Christy? I'm back. back. Yeah, I would say it's a slight disagree. I'm not okay. sure. I I didn't have a lot of time to think that one out, <laughs> but I would I would put that at like a two. Okay. Hey. Hmm? Yeah, I'm I'm on the fence on that one. I'm on the fence on that one. Did I don't you say quite you're know. Neither agree nor disagree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like in the middle somewhere. I to some extent I. I think, like, yes, our responses are related to fight or flight, and because we have different, like, stimuli than we did before, those responses are different. But I wouldn't say that, like, we constantly have anxiety because we're not actually being chased and there isn't a resolution. Mm. I don't think that's necessarily the reason, but I do think it's related so i'm just in between somewhere i would need to nod it over for a lot longer to have a better answer yeah i'm asking you to give me top of the dome <laughs> responses to some very complex like psychological and and sociological questions which yeah. is fair or unfair it's unfair of me to do it's fair of you to have that response <laughs> okay last one mm-hmm. freedom of the press is of very little use to the average citizen as an individual The mass media are mostly under the control of large organizations that are integrated into the system. Anyone who has a little money can have something printed or can distribute it on the internet or in some such way. But what he has to say will be swamped by the vast volume of material put out by the media, hence will have no practical effect. There's a lot in that. I like I found myself like wanting to split that into two. Yeah. Um, Like freedom of the press uh, having a. having an advantage to the individual seems to me to be like a, like a strong agree, like, or, or a strong disagree. Like I feel like freedom of the press it is is a freedom of speech and a freedom of speech. 
that is like universal is of massive value to everybody. But I do think that um, not everyone's speech is equal. And when it comes to like, like, yes, like all, almost all of the large media that we absorb. Um, they have an angle. Well, yeah, they, they're they're the, the ownership over the production of that media means by necessity that like it's someone's speech made very loud and magnified. And of, like, of course, like, you know, like the, the little voices get lost in that. Right. Um, but like, okay, so like, what's the, uh, <laughs> there's so many things in that question that I don't know whether I end up landing on. I guess I kind of somewhat agree. Like, I disagree with the, 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 the at the beginning that it's not of much <laughs> value to people, but I agree that it benefits the individual less than it benefits the moneyed interests that produce the largest, you know, uh, media voice. They get the most out of it. I I think that um, with the way the internet is now, that it changes the dynamic of this question a little bit because we have seen like small voices that are very loud mm -hmm. go viral, you know. So like they're heard in a way. Yeah, that's true. That they couldn't have ever been heard before. And that isn't always a good thing, but I think that there is more of a likelihood for that to happen for the smaller faction to ring louder than ever before in history. And so it, it's like a weird, it, 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 it changes things a lot, but. How would your answer change if I asked you to consider this with the state of the internet circa 1995 when we had things like bulletin boards, we had forums, you could certainly post things publicly on the internet, but um, I, I would agree like with Google it more. Great. I would agree okay. with it more in 1995 yeah, than I, today. I agree. I think that uh, in like the last like 15 years, uh, um, uh, 25 years, my God, what year is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the last 25 years, I would, I would agree that I think that like, uh, social platforms grant the possibility for a very small voice to gather like a lot of momentum. Um, and so in that way, things are possible that would have been much harder to accomplish through like traditional, uh, media or press. Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess, yeah, I would like, I would lean back slightly on that and be more inclined to. Um... <laughs> I would agree. Definitely agree more than, than now. Or is it disagree? Cause I, now I've lost the thread. <laughs> <laughs> I think you both somewhat agree that conceptually it is important for us to have a freedom of the press, but our, Let's face it, most mass media is under the handle of like three groups yep. at this point. Yeah. And, uh, two and of them the, are... sm the smaller voices get lost yeah. in the shuffle because they aren't, they, they can't compare to a conglomerate. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was, I was going to say that uh, if three groups control the media, two of them are Disney. Um, <laughs> it's just like that bad now. <laughs> 
So the reason I asked how your question or how your response to the question would change if this was talking about the internet of 1995 is that these were all taken from something that was published by the Washington Post in September of 1995. And in particular, that last quote was the lead up to the explanation to why the Unabomber stated that he <laughs> sent packages containing explosive devices to people over the course of 17 years. Um, he was writing as quote unquote Freedom Club and he used we in a lot of his writing. And so it says like, that's why we undertook this um, so that we could get the publishing power of, in that case, the Washington Post, I believe they specifically, he, sorry, asked for either the Washington Post or the New York Times, or at any rate, a quote unquote, like, uh, forget the phrase, but it had to be like an upstanding, like respectable a traditional publication. Media. Yeah, um, Penthouse actually volunteered to publish it, but Kaczynski replied that uh, that would not quite be enough and that he would not promise to immediately stop the bombing campaign in the way that he promised he would if a an, a major publication that is respectable published his work. Um, I like I have to ask you, how am I doing on the Kaczynski <laughs> index? Like, what? how uh, much so of a well, Unabomber am I? <laughs> that's... Um, so I wasn't really trying to be, I was trying to be a little bit cheeky with this intro because I guess my take for this episode is that um, I feel that we spend a lot of time in the true crime realm. If you listen to true crime podcasts or read true crime books, or even a lot of the main news coverage of the Unabomber as a concept, as a, a wave of things that happened, mm -hmm. uh, really presented him as like somebody went on a bombing spree and then made the times or the post publish a rambling manifesto that's the delusions of a paranoid schizophrenic and uh -huh. he never would have been stopped his his reign of terror never would have ended had his brother not turned him in in a, a valiant display of noble activity and i I want to, again, step back and say, like, I'm not trying to be glib. I'm not trying to be, like, an apologist about the things that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, Ted Kaczynski, and I'm going to call him Ted because his brother has also written a book and his father's name is also Theodore. So, like, yeah, using Kaczynski is, is kind of vague at this point. I'm not trying to say that we're buds. I have not sent him any letters. <laughs> but I'm going to uh, use Ted of, because it's the, the most unique identifier that can be used here. So um, it kind of sounded like we're going in a pretty pro Unabomber direction. I don't know. Answer the question. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, that's uh, yeah, Ted. Got it. Well, I, th I think I, I get what you're getting at, which is like we really have a way of like writing people off as monsters who do really bad things and it does us a disservice because it's like it, they're not if you think of someone as a monster you're dehumanizing them and it's it's easier to dismiss them and be like well i could tell he would be a bad guy because he's he's just a total monster instead of like this is a real human with some issues but some of the things they say are valid and he has valid concerns and like obviously did wrong things. Mm. But you can't just write someone off as a monster because you're not actually addressing the problem then. Yeah, and I 
I had wanted to talk about this on the podcast for quite a while, which Christy knows, um, but I mm -hmm. kept wrestling with the concept of, like, is it appropriate to spend an hour talking about, like, why the Unabomber had some points? You know? <laughs> no, you know is what? Is it necessary to add this? Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I think it's perfect for this show. Like, like uh, we, we, we dig into a lot of people that, like, we are not <laughs> completely on board with, but we, like, find something... We we, we, we we try to find the humanity in stories that sometimes seem like incredibly uh, black and white. I, I think that that kind of nuance is appropriate for this show. Yeah, and the thing that pushed me yeah. over into actually committing to do it and to, to do some reading and do some work is I was listening to the backlog of the podcast You're Wrong About um, since mm -hmm. I've been working at home Great podcast. for six months. Yes, it's excellent. And in particular, in the DC Sniper episode three, I think they did a four part, um, four episode span on the DC Snipers. Uh, Sarah, one of the co-hosts talks about how true crime has a lot of genre expectations and it has a lot of tropes. And one of them is, and I, I noticed this, but I didn't really notice it until she put it into words. True crime isn't really coded as being depressing, right? It doesn't bring you down at, by the time you get to the end of a podcast or a book. It's more like they're sad because you're sad along with the victims or the victims' families, these things that happen to them. But then you also see throughout his presentation, like the sweat on the brow of the investigators as they work very hard. Mm -hmm. And then they catch the person that's doing it. And then there's this release of all the sadness and stress because it's over. And we're like, well, it's, it's, it's like a, a happy ending even yeah. though, like, no one really wins there. Right. And she goes on to say that the explanation of the killer's motive is usually either incredibly reductive or they're like, well, he's a mystery. Guess we'll never know. Like, somebody terrorized Seattle for five years. Who could have? I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, like, Ted Kaczynski goes, is much more complicated than that, for sure. Yeah, she goes on to say that, um, this is later in the episode, we have kind of an idea, and I very much agree with this. We have this idea as a society that to understand the position or the humanity or the background or the intentions of a person who commits crimes takes away from the tragedy of what they've done, the tragedy of, you know, deaths or even just like thefts or assaults or things like that. Mm -hmm. And yeah. she asks, do we really take a death more seriously or empathize or mourn something more effectively if we say like and then he killed her and i bet he liked it and he never felt bad a day in his life and he loved going on murderous sprees i don't think we do she posits that like this is incorrect and that it there is value in understanding yeah the build-up to this or like who the person behind it is and i think that now I was afraid that now would be a bad time for this because everybody is very stressed with quarantine things. Lots of people are out of work, things like that. Um, but I wonder if this is an excellent time to talk about it because finally, in my opinion, it's finally, there are a lot of conversations being had on the topics of like, is our system in place to really do a good job of, of preventing and or investigating crime or... Is the system kind of showing up afterward and saying, well, they must have been a terrible criminal. It's fine that the cops shot that person. Mm -hmm. uh, they shouldn't shouldn't do crime. Um, yeah. No, I think I think you're right. Like yeah. there's a ton of conversation about this happening right now. And like, it, you know, to the extent, <laughs> obviously, that like a large number of people are calling to, uh, you know, defund police as a response to like how how badly 
policing seems to be going. So I, I think it's not a bad time to like, you know, talk about things like this with some degree of nuance. I, right. And I want to be clear, I'm not drawing a line between like the murder of unarmed black people and Ted Kaczynski. He did kill three people. He harmed a lot of people over the course of 17 years. I don't want to minimize this or right. compare it to somebody who's, you know, wasn't doing anything at all. Uh, but I do think that we can have both things in our mind at once and we can right. look the, at it. The, the problem is related, which is like dismissing dismissing criminals completely and dismissing victims of police violence completely even if they're even when they're completely innocent because the police said so and in not actually looking into why things are happening and the sy systemic issues involved in what we can actually do to address those systemic issues in instead of what we've been doing which is the system is fine yeah, and in addition to talk about the systems that if somebody has committed a crime, potentially are involved in them choosing to do that, right? Yeah. Um, I think yeah. for a large part of my life, I was just like, well, if you did a crime, like, you shouldn't have done a crime. <laughs> Suck it. Whatever. Um, but then at the same time, we can all watch Aladdin and be like, but he stole bread because he was starving. Right. Right. Life, cut off. life is very, as much as some people want to think of it, life is not black and white and people do things for a lot of different reasons and the reasons are important and our justice system doesn't always consider the reasons and like it, you know something like Aladdin yeah stealing is bad but also you don't want to die or you don't want your family to die or your pet monkey to die or whatever <laughs> like, the, there's more nuance to life than this is wrong don't do it Oh, whoops, you did it, and now you have to be punished. It, uh, I think our, our, a lot of our systems are very broken, and we tend to like to view things in a very simplistic way. And I'm all for discussing things in a more nuanced way. Yeah. Um, also, frankly, a little bit of this podcast, I think, I mentioned this to Christy, is just me being very defensive about people who skipped grades as children. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You you said that you had um, listened to someone else's discussion of this, and they, they like, made a blanket statement about... Yeah, people I don't just, think we need people to name grades. We no, no, we don't have to name them. Here, but within the first two or three minutes of think of one... Um, it was like, I, and this is something I've noticed about podcasts that discuss Ted Kaczynski conceptually, is that it seems like they either A, start by doing a rundown of all of these crimes, and they're like, it all started when this security officer picked up this package, and it exploded, and then they talk about all these gruesome things, mm -hmm. and then they talk about how the investigation was the longest and most expensive investigation the FBI ever had, and they might not have figured it out except for his brother, and I'm like, okay, record scratch freeze frame kind of the fbi's job like yeah yes clearly we're talking about how big this one was but that is what they exist for and this is an issue that i had i used to work at an employer where i was a salaried employee we did all of our projects as fixed bids so the client only ever paid a certain amount but i would still get chewed out if my investigation took longer than like 
the made up, in my opinion, hourly billing rate that was assigned to me. And I was like, but none of these numbers matter. Like everybody at the FBI is a salaried employee. Just yeah. my weird tangent. One of many <laughs> for today. Or they start out by talking about like he was a child and he skipped grades and then somebody's like why haven't we decided that this is bad and every kid that gets moved up a grade turns out to be an insane person yeah, what the and hell I'm is like, that? I'm like right that's here. a shitty that's a shitty yeah, take I, you know <laughs> as as far as i know you've never murdered anybody and if, and if <laughs> you did well if you did you would never tell us we would never find Knock out on about wood. i feel like i have a 100 no murder rate uh, to in my life <laughs> try to keep up that no murder streak so for maybe a little more context for listeners i i met kirsten in college um i think i was a junior and you were coming in as a freshman and you were a young freshman because you'd skipped a couple grades. And I knew that we were like there was a student who was coming in who had skipped grades. And I knew it was either you or your roommate. And you are not the one I guessed was the young one. <laughs> I will just say that. <laughs> um, but you're 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 fine. you're you're not like uh, (laughs) i i just think even making that assumption is so bizarre to me i've never once made that assumption about someone who skipped grades i've known a couple but that is not ever a conclusion i've jumped to it's particularly interesting me to me that this is specifically what people i've heard um choose to pick on because there are a couple of other things that happened during his lifetime and in his development that I think are much more significant. And yeah, I've definitely heard a few times the skipping grades thing as like, well, we should just never do it. Like give them more homework. They shouldn't be allowed to skip because clearly they become maladjusted. What a weird what a weird thought. <sighs> yeah. I <laughs> I I think there are reasons that skipping grades could be very difficult for a kid. Um, but I don't think that it's as a blanket statement statement, it's going to cause kids to be maladjusted. Yeah. So full disclosure for the listeners, uh, I went to college at the same age that this guy did. Uh, I was also packed up and dropped off without a driver's license. There is one pull quote that appeared in one article and then gets repeated over and over and over in like second and third level documents about Ted Kaczynski where it's like they packed him up and sent him off before he was ready he didn't even have a driver's license and I'm like yeah I had my learner's permit like I <laughs> I needed to hold it for another like three months and then I got my license and it was fine yeah, it's where they make it sound like no one cared about him it's like no he was just really smart and ahead of his time and couldn't get a license yet or whatever it's like you know also, <laughs> countless people don't have driver's licenses, and I think that right. it is not a judgment of their uh, <laughs> maturity. It is usually a judgment of if they grew up in a place with public transportation or not. Yeah, yeah. I I knew someone who didn't have a driver's license because they had massive anxiety surrounding it and had really bad panic attacks every time they tried to drive. And so they didn't have a driver's license for that reason, and they got around just fine. Like, they got around it. Like, it it's not people's opinions over this stuff is so weird yeah um the other thing that i noticed a lot and after this one i'm done just complaining about other podcasts but i noticed a lot of people (laughs) 
a lot of people would wind up making very backhanded remarks about like, well, he looks raggedy in his mugshot. He clearly doesn't even know what soap is. He doesn't even use the internet. How can he complain about technology? And uh, I would like to point out as my starting base that his definition of technology is anything after the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. So he did yeah. live <laughs> with technology by this definition for most of his life. Yeah. Ted Kaczynski was in on the miracle of modern soap. I don't really know <laughs> what. Uh, I don't know. Even so, in like. Also, like, what a weird thing to pick on because, like, anyone's mugshot is not usually good. Yeah. <laughs> like, because it, it comes at obviously a very stressful situation, right? Like, he and was probably in hiding. Crimp yourself before. I right. Mean, they're I not like, all right, kid, go clean yourself up and then we'll take this picture. <laughs> Let me get the flashbulb. Like, <laughs> do you want to use a ring light so that you can get we're some diffuse soft lighting? We're in the 1940s <laughs> for some reason in my version. Um, Kid. Yeah, you see the reflection of the ring light in his eyes and his mugshot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's super... <laughs> Let's take a picture of someone at presumably like the worst day after the worst time. Not saying that it wasn't earned, but like, and then let's make a judgment that he looks like he might be stinky. I don't know. If you were hiding from getting caught because you did something really horrible, you then maybe you hadn't bathed because you were in hiding. Like now, you'd probably look pretty fucked up too. And to clarify, he wasn't necessarily in hiding, but he did live like on a little over an acre of land <laughs> in a cabin that he built. Um, there was like a wash basin, the way that we used to use, like you know, you would heat up water over the fire and put it in a basin and wash basin and wash up. But he didn't have running water, and that was <laughs> it. Like he didn't interact with other people except for like maybe once or twice a month, he would ride his bike into town to get things that he couldn't grow or hunt or whatever by himself. Mm -hmm. And so this also is basically like every through hiker on every trail in between town stops. Um, yeah, this is a state which I think it's perfectly defensible for one person when not interacting with others to be stinky. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's give the guy a little credit. Uh, so I I wanted to basically actually read the source material here. So I have two printed books by Theodore John Kaczynski. They both contain on the back the statement that he does not receive any remuneration for the books. One of them is uh, Anti-Tech Revolution, Why and How, which I read a long time ago and I did not reread for this, but um, is kind of seen as his revision, I guess. It's a whole book that does not specifically call for violence, uh, that, that writes about like more in depth why he feels that a revolution is needed against technology again as the concept of like everything that we've come up with post first industrial revolution in the late 1700s to early 1800s mm. the second one is technological slavery i think i have the third edition it's called volume one but i'm not sure what volume two is and that contains industrial society and its future which most people call the unabomber manifesto that is the essay which was published in 1995. He is still adding footnotes to it up to 2016. He said that he wanted to republish this because he was afraid that the Trump administration basically would change the rules on if he's allowed to have like his notes and his books and things like that Whoa. in prison. No kidding. 
Uh, also, after that, picked up the book by David Kaczynski, which is his brother. And it's called Every Last Tie, the story of the Unabomber and his family. And this really goes a long way to fleshing out a lot of what I felt was missing um, from a lot of everything. Like even newspaper reports, even these really big um, special reporting pieces that were put in like the New York Times around that time and for the few years after which makes sense because I think that he, David, I think that he frankly was kind of like, A, what the hell you guys? And B, you're not doing a very good job, particularly because uh, he starts it off by saying, in the late number of in the late summer of 1995, my wife, Linda, sat me down for a serious talk. And she is the reason that he even read what was called the manifesto. Um she was the one who was really the driving person. And I think that he maybe is a little bit defensive about how he always gets painted as like the valiant brother who turned him in, which must have been very tough when he's like, actually, my wife really was was the person who told me I needed to look at this and at least consider if it could be my brother or not. Because wow. he was kind of just like going about his life like, yep, crazy stuff's happening. Stuff in the yeah. news. A oh whack job posting stuff. And it like hadn't really occurred to him until his wife was like, hey, this kind of sounds like Maybe your brother? Yeah. Wow. Okay. That gets left out. Well, and for also, sure. I mean, if you're not <sighs> picking up the Washington Post, like, are you going to go get it to read this thing? Are you going to assume that you know who it is? <laughs> right. Right. At any time family turns in a family member, it is like the decision that goes into that has to be incredibly complicated. And it, it doesn't matter if it was his wife bringing it to him and being like, oh, hey, this sounds kind of familiar or not. I'm, I'm thinking of another case in which a daughter turned her father in. Mm -hmm. But it it's an incredibly complicated decision, but it doesn't necessarily make him a hero. It, you know, it, yeah, just, and it's, it was a shitty situation and a shitty decision that they made as a family. Right, and this includes their mother. Um, their father was deceased at the time already. Uh, but the other component to this is that nobody was supposed to have ever known who turned him in. The FBI promised them full anonymity, and within a day or two, there had been a leak, which has never been figured out who the leak was. Oh, jeez. And so their name like, was in the news. Oh, my God. Next day. And... Like, you just went through all of this very difficult decision-making about, like, maybe this is my family member. I need to say something. And he, you know, rounded up a lot of letters that had been sent to him and their mom by Ted and, you know, let agents come into their home and, and look at everything. And then, you know, and, they say, okay, great. I'm sure, I'm sure in that moment, even when you're giving that information over, you're going but I hope you do the investigation and I hope it isn't him. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's not like they went into it going, I'm 100% sure it's him. Here's everything. Lock him up. It's like, it, if it is him, I don't want it to continue, but hopefully it's not. Yeah. Right. You want them to go like, knock on his door, ask to talk to him, find out there's no proof that it's him and then be done. And then like, maybe he's extra mad at you. But at this time, Ted was very self-estranged from the whole family um mm -hmm. david talks about how i think at one point he says he decides he's like 
Well, there's a 50-50 chance maybe it's him. And he decides that that's enough to at least give the agents information. Mm -hmm. Um, And he talks about how he was very worried because this happened after both Waco and Ruby Ridge. And Janet Reno was still in her position, which I forget exactly what it was now. She was attorney Um, general, I think. Yeah, I think so. And he was picturing, like, my brother lives in a cabin in the woods. If they roll up with automatic weapons screaming for him to come out, like, and it's not him, or even if it is him, like, so much stress. It could end badly, even if it's not him. And, in fact, I would argue that there was historic precedent that this had ended badly when the federal government did things like this in the recent past. Yeah, very well. Was this post uh, Waco? Was it like? Yeah. Okay. Well, then, yeah. Pretty fresh reasons to like take it easy on this one. Yeah. Yeah. Very valid concerns. <laughs> yeah. Um, the reason I brought this up is that I wanted to add that uh, one set of their grandparents actually lived in Zanesville, Ohio. They were uh, their grandparents were Polish immigrants to the U.S. And so one half had been living in Zanesville, Ohio, which I thought you would find interesting. And the other half and where Ted eventually grew up was around Chicago. Um, I think somebody has mentioned this. I know it's, it's a little bit humorous how many of my recent conversations with different groups of friends have been about the Unabomber, but somebody (laughs) suggested that his father was a sausage maker, which was true at least for a point of time. So you have this picture of like a working class family pretty recent immigrants to the United States. And in particular, David says that their mom really pushed like, you boys are going to get educated. You're going to go to school. She would take them to museums, to zoos. Um, Always really wanted them to be, I mean, I guess like the dream, right? And maybe this is another instance of me identifying too much here. But I feel like that was my thing was like, well, we're working our jobs and they kind of suck. And you can do something that isn't, just being a working class person with a blue collar job. And I say that with all the love in the world for working class people and blue collar jobs as well. Right. But parents always aspire for their kids to do something, whatever that is to them that is bigger or better or beyond, or somehow did they parents always want their kid to take over the world? Don't they? I mean, yeah, I, I, I think every, every decent parent has that idea of like, I make sacrifices in my life so my kids can have more than I did. Right. Whatever those tangibly look like, that's usually the goal. And that's the way you were raised was the way I was raised. Of Like, we work blue-collar jobs. We do what we have to do. But we don't want you to have to make the decision of just doing what you have to do. And I think, in particular, our generation was the generation that was told, like, you should do the things that make you happy and make money off of them. And that has not worked out for a lot of us, but I think that was the goal. And so like, that is not a foreign concept at all to me. Yeah. And I always think about, um, I was at my first white collar job, like desk job when standing desks became a big thing. And suddenly all these people I know from work or from like my work sphere, I guess, 
art, extolling the virtues of standing desks. And I'm like, literally the whole point of me going to college was that I could sit on my ass and do a job that I didn't have to physically labor at. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. No, I don't want to stand all day. That was the point. I've done all my standing. It's time to sit. You know what sucks? Standing for nine hours in, in what are they? Shoes for cruise, non-slip, black-soled sneakers. Yeah, standing sucks. That's the. There's a reason we have the chair, damn it. I shouldn't disparage shoes for cruise because those were like the nice ones. I was in the like Walmart $8 non-slip sole shoes. Anyway. Stinks. <laughs> yeah, I refuse to do a standing desk, but anyway. <laughs> The, not my current job, but my last job, we didn't technically have standing desks, but they were really high, like counters. And so I had a job where I could sit, like my particular role. And so I could either stand because I am the height that I am. I'm short. <laughs> I could either stand comfortably and do my job, or I could sit in a very high chair and do my job. And sometimes the chair would make my legs fall asleep if I sat in it too long. So I would sometimes I would stand, but I usually sat because sitting's more comfortable. <laughs> well, this is our so, yeah, complicated the... essay on sitting and it's standing. My, it's my hot take. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's. I think that everybody on the pod like can relate to this background that's presented by David in his book. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of this Midwestern like families bust an ass, frankly, and wants their kids to do more. And this is something that Ted a little bit talks about, kind of with like an angry <laughs> look back. And I will say. A lot of Ted's writing, in my opinion, is pretty defensive. And mm. it feels like, and his brother says this, he was a person who really internalized things. And I do think if you add that into the mix with like literally not seeing any other humans for three weeks at a time, he probably stewed on a lot of things. And so he interpreted yeah. um, his parents kind of pushing him into like science, math, engineering as a pretty bad thing and he rails about like we keep pushing kids into engineering so that they can like build more and better things and we never ask if a teenage boy wants to be doing Whoa. science all day and i'm like you kind of have a point i think you're a little angry no that's really you know what's so interesting about that though it's like that's exactly what the butcher's boy is gonna say too is damn it my parents try to push me into this butcher thing why can't i go out there and build a rocket ship like it just strikes me that everyone's gonna find yeah, they're, they're, no matter where you are in life, someone's going to find the thing that they resent if, having been pushed into if that's yeah, how they are. Yeah, if someone's pushing you in a direction, there's an instinctive part of all of us that's like, but no, don't tell me what to do. Which is very yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I think without, that's... Without a sounding board, like if he was close to his brother and had a conversation like, you know, I, the parents pushed me into this and I didn't want to do it. And his brother could be like, yeah, yeah, it's shitty, but like they meant well. It can tamper down that little nugget of like hatred that grows when you have no one to talk to about stuff. Yeah, and I bring that up in part because I think it's a good illustration of what I'm trying to say here, which is not like this was all fine. This was all normal. I certainly think his behaviors were pathological. I certainly think that a lot of his mindset was not great. Um, <laughs> but I guess I'm not willing to throw out the whole thing. Like it's brought up repeatedly, including in his trial, um, that some people who evaluated him felt that he might 
have paranoid schizophrenia or that he might at least might have paranoid ideation, to which I would point out, um, I think there are a lot of situations in life where people have seemed very paranoid. And then it turns out that like, I don't know, there was like government surveillance on people <laughs> like MLK Jr. or yeah. MK Ultra did happen and things like that. Uh, you know, yes, and... paranoia does not necessarily mean you are afraid of things that do not exist. I mean, often, but not always. Right. I bring up MKUltra in part because... Uh, so I mentioned earlier that there are two things that I do think that likely contributed to something mm. in Ted's development, like, kind of going wrong. One of them is that when he was an infant, he had a really bad allergic reaction. And I'm not sure if they figured out exactly what it was, but he basically had incredibly bad hives and he had to be put in the hospital. And at mm. the time, which I think was either the 40s or the 50s, mm. um, the 40s, it was kind of the approach to medicine where it's like parents are meddling. Nobody needs interaction. I think now we have a little bit better grasp of like human interaction and talking is good especially for babies yeah. so he yeah was put they've in the done hospital. a lot of studies on that yeah he was put in the hospital for weeks and i think his mom was quoted as saying like twice for one hour at a time we were allowed to see him and they basically didn't see him until he was released wow. and then right and it's says, not like doctors were talking to him oh no <laughs> as a baby you know he was put in one of those little baby boxes and probably pretty much left alone for a while and uh i think david... of a quiet place when you say baby box <laughs> i don't know if you've seen that movie but david knows what i'm talking about i haven't mm, it's i was just movie. thinking of those like the clear things that they like put yeah in yeah for yeah on this treatment yeah mm -hmm. little uv boxes for little little uv babies <laughs> <laughs> gotta get that tan <laughs> that's why we do it right we only bring back home the tannest babies yeah we we, we give every baby a little glamour tan and uh put they're a gonna little... be in a lot of pictures soon do one of those suntan <laughs> tattoos with a little like heart it's like a free a service the hospital the hospital provides <laughs> are you gonna bring home an unglamorous baby no thanks god there is there's a novel in the works in my mind in which this is a thing. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, David and I think at least one other source uh, cite a conversation with his mother where she talks about how they would just like carry him around. Okay, so he was nine months old. The quote from David's book is, in those days, hospitals wouldn't let parents stay with a sick baby and we were only allowed to visit him every other day for a couple of hours. I remember how your brother screamed in terror when I had to hand him over to the nurse and she took him away to another room. They had to stick lots of needles in Teddy, who was much too young to understand that everything being done to him was for his own good. Oh and she God. talks about how when he came back, they would carry him around and like hold him a lot and they would try specifically like, to get him to make smile up for back it. at them. No, to try to get reactions from him as an infant Aww. that he had had before he left. Because you know how you, like, you, you see a baby and you're like, hi, baby, yeah. and you do the voice and you do the face and they're like, smile, <laughs> smile, smile, little baby gums. Uh, he wasn't doing that. And I think that that's incredibly significant. And I think that we have a body of other psychological work in talking about like, quote unquote, feral babies or babies who were in like yeah. orphanage settings that didn't get any interaction. And they frequently never socialize and develop like 
social interaction and reactions to human emotions with other people in the way yeah. that babies who didn't have that happen to. So I, I think at that's... that age, it's like human interaction is incredibly important. And it his case is like that's it's a little different because he a lot of times it's like they find a child who didn't have any human interaction at all. And so it's not the best comparison. But the fact that he wasn't giving reactions he was giving before is is pretty bad. Yeah, my jaw dropped when I was reading that because the significance of like an infant not mirroring yeah. an expression is huge. Yeah. It's like very innate to them. It's very creepy that it just like stopped. Wow. So yeah. <laughs> I think that's a big one, and I feel like it gets brushed over very quickly in a lot of other media. The other one is at Harvard, and this is the one that I was uh, bringing up MK Ultra to talk about. Mm -hmm. And this was incredibly difficult to find a lot of data on. Um, David describes it as the Harvard study my brother participated in was called Multiform Assessments of Personality Development Among Gifted College Men. It was overseen by the noted psychologist Henry Murray, who during World War II worked for the Office of Strategic Services, which later became the CIA, where he developed methodologies for interrogating prisoners of war. Oh, my so, God. So a ton of the records relating to this are either no longer being furnished on request because the media got wind of it and they said, no, you can't just pull records of people in psychological studies like you can't, which kind of fair. Mm hmm. Yeah, eh, eh. would love to see the original documents myself, though, if mm -hmm. anybody has a connection. Um, and in David's book, he says, like, most of the records are destroyed or lost. There's no direct evidence that the Murray experience experiments were funded by the CIA. However, it is clear my brother was a guinea pig in an unethical and psychologically damaging research project conducted by a team of psychological researchers who used deceptive tactics to study the effects of emotional and psychological trauma on unwitting human subjects. Now, Ted was a minor. And so they oh. got a consent form from Harvard saying, hey, like, we'd like to do some psychological research. Ted wants to be involved. And his mom says at the time she was happy to do it because she thought he had some adjustment issues and was like, a nice psychologist would be great for him to talk to. Oh, no. And I Ugh. did some digging. And so I found out that that reference to talking about interrogating prisoners uh, seemed to be taken from a biography that was done on Henry Murray. I found a copy of that and I thought for sure I found like the mother load of interesting information. And I will say it's interesting, but not necessarily relevant to what I'd like to talk about. Um, apparently, so the focus of this guy's biography is not really that much on like his psychological work. It seems to mm -hmm. be largely about how he wanted to write a biography of Melville, like like Moby Dick Melville. <laughs> what? Um, yeah. But he had a lot of writer's block. And also he had a longtime mistress that was like part of his dyad. They were two. She was she hated and young Melville. and beautiful. <laughs> and she was an artist and she was mystical. And he was the the, oh, the God. GI she mindset was, man. She was the manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like to point out that she had what they called, I think, a sympathectomy or something like that. She had really high blood pressure and was very stressed. And so they were like at the time, hey, we could sever your nerves where they meet at your spinal column. 
Oh. First on one side and then a couple weeks after the other. And like, if you survive, maybe that would fix it. And conveniently, what? He, this is around when he like goes off to live somewhere else to support the war effort. And he's like, sounds bad. Uh, see you later. And I have a lot of very big concerns and issues with, and I didn't fully read the biography cover to cover. I will say that I read kind of the relevant years to what I was looking for. But this guy is certainly interesting. Um, he once gave like a first or second edition of Moby Dick to Sigmund Freud. He wow. seems to be very cemented in like psychoanalysis in particular. He was analyzed by Carl Jung. Jung, I don't know. I think it's Jung. My psych classes were a Jung. long time ago. Um, but he was in that era of like psychoanalysis type psych uh, psychology. Yeah. Um, in 1940, he was asked by an agency, some intelligence agency of the federal government to work on a profile, like a personality profile of Hitler. Um, like what might his weaknesses be kind of the way that we profile serial killers, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Around that time, he was also involved in some group that held quote unquote morale seminars regarding the second world war. And they did a lot of research on requests to the government on aspects of propaganda. Um, and oh, there's wow. a specific sentence or phrase, Harry best remembered trying to develop questions for the crew of a captured German submarine. And I was like, that's an interesting way of phrasing what might be <laughs> torture. Yeah. Developing yeah. questions is a great euphemism for violently trying to extract information from people. Yeah. And then in 1944, he worked in the OSS uh, developing testing systems for recruits to, I think, maybe try to find who would be like a good undercover worker or a spy, basically. This included things like assessing their problem solving, their problem solving in groups. How strong are they? How's their physical endurance? Also, debates, um, like debating them and then testing how well they could hold their liquor, pretty much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I see this as related because then he like eventually comes back to Washington, D.C. Uh, he was asked at one point to be a psych consultant to the Nuremberg War Trials, and in particular in a letter he described this as his job would have been finding a way to represent these proceedings to the German people, this is a quote, in such a way as to facilitate in them a transformation of attitudes and aims. He did decline this, um, but he was he was asked to do that if he wanted. Wow, that really... He was still working. Go ahead. I was just going to say that that's kind of like a very coded way to talk about whatever, you know, I mean, you might call that propaganda, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. it's what yeah. it sounds like. Oh, for sure. I think it's very pertinent that eventually another one of the things that Ted Kaczynski writes about in Industrial Society in its Future is propaganda and advertising. And at least one of the people that was the recipient of a bomb worked for an advertising agency and he said he picked them because they helped Exxon Mobil clean up their image after I think like a, a big oil leak or something like that. Oh wow. Um this guy was great. He later described Harvard as a backwater for the social sciences when he came back, but then he was involved in forming the Department of Social Relations. He was a lecturer. Uh and then where the paths cross more fully is in 1949, I think this is related, I'm not sure, but he did get a Rockefeller Foundation grant to have like research fellows, secretaries. He says this is where he intends to launch his dyadic research. Mm, um, okay. This is something that comes up a ton in the biography, this, this concept of a dyad, both because he and the mistress are described as one 
And because a lot of his research, instead of being the single person psychoanalysis of like Freud, Jung, those sort of theories, he's like, well, what if we studied the smallest social group, which would be two people, and how they interact? So this 1959 to 1962, which I'm pretty sure is the same time Ted Kaczynski was a participant in the trial, his biography, Murray's biography, describes as like the major phase of this testing. And this is another quote, to discover all that can be known about 20 plus stressful dyadic episodes, structured as a debate between the prepared participant and the actual subject. The subject was asked to like describe and defend their personal philosophy of life. And then the goal was to basically bring the subject to a point of rage um, because the other person is a stooge that's been prepared to pick at everything and say, well, what about this? Well, what about this? So you feel this way, but that's kind of stupid, don't you think? Um, and then they recorded it on film and audio. And then all the rest of the study was making them go back over and over and over this and identifying like, well, it seems like you were mad here. Why is that? Oh my God. Which I so think is an incredibly it... distressing concept. <laughs> yeah. So they made a lot of, <laughs> they made people act like the devil's advocate and then questioned the person getting devil's advocated why they were upset by it. I think this is every internet argument I let myself get sucked into before I wised up where somebody's like, well, oh, devil's yeah. advocate, what if you didn't have rights? And I'm like, I'm really angry because I do believe I should have rights. And they're like, but what if you didn't? And then I get mad and they're like, you're too emotional for this. Yeah. Like, well, it's like a classic, it's a, a gaslighting thing, right? Like being told your reality isn't real is really frustrating and then yeah. being told that you're wrong for being frustrated is like the ultimate mind fuck so that went on for three years and ted kaczynski when three asked years? why he kept going back said that he didn't want them to feel like they had broken him oh my god oh that's such a long time oh and i feel that i feel that <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I didn't have a study done on me, but like yeah. I, I've interacted with people who are incredibly manipulated, and I had that feeling of like I don't want them to win, so I didn't leave the situation for a really long time. And it, to anyone who might possibly be going through something like that, there's no winning or losing. Just get out of the situation. You're not proving anything by staying in a bad situation and having your mind fucked with. I I have like some empathy with him for that. I I get why you would not want them to win, so to speak, but like there's no there's no winning for you. That's that's super shitty. Yeah. So the book that I was quoting from is called Love's Story Told: A Life of Henry A. Murray. That's by Forrest G. Robinson. You can still get a copy freshly from I think like Harvard Press. Uh, I would like to add before I move on, he's, the author states in the beginning that many people interviewed for that would only speak to him on the condition that the biography would be published only after Murray died, which I find stressful. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> it's a little ominous. Yeah, so uh, a lot of interesting, yeah. interesting like, characters. I'll tell you the truth about this guy, but... But he don't can let him never know. know that I <laughs> spoke never to you. <laughs> well, it does. It doesn't. Uh, doesn't make him look great. No, I'll say that. 
<laughs> yeah. So um, another, you know, confirmation. I'm not saying that these two things lead to it being acceptable to mail explosive devices to people, but I do think that these two things, especially when taken together, paint a better picture of like how a person can have their social relationship ability kind of arrested in its development uh, in many ways. And I think it's more pertinent than him skipping two grades. <laughs> this is still just me coming back around to say kids who skip two grades are fine. I was going to say, this is a long way around to say, you know, it's, it's skipping a couple of grades is not so big a deal. Maybe some other things are more I, important in your life. Yeah. Um, I think your social your social development interaction as an infant when you're laying down all of those little connections between your different neurons is very important. And I think it's important mm -hmm. to not be part of a three-year deceptive study before we had the IRB, I guess, uh, designed to infuriate you over and over again and make you feel oh, yeah. like a stupid person. I, 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 I just want to say, like, I think it's very surprising that I have never heard about this. And it feels like that should be a way bigger part of the Ted Kaczynski story. Mo oh, again, I'm going to harp on this again. When we talk about true crime, often the message is like, well, this is a bad dude, or maybe it was just mental illness or whatever. And not like, Hey, maybe there are systemic problems for, you know, why this happened. Like maybe they're not a huge concern anymore. Like we don't abandon like not I'm not saying abandoned in the way that like his parents didn't do it, but like medical professionals don't not interact with babies and prevent families from interacting with their babies when they're getting procedures as a young child. That's not a systemic issue anymore in most of the United States, I would hope. But like we we should be discussing systemic issues. There's a reason the IRB exists now. Yeah, and hopefully they're not approving those anymore. Um, I yeah. also think it's like it's important and it's incredibly depressing that from continuing to read in that portion of Murray's biography, I didn't really see any sign that anything published came out of that. I don't know that he reached any useful conclusion. I'm not sure oh. what his hypothesis was. Um, yeah, I wish we knew what his hypothesis was. Other than I, just the with people's heads. <laughs> I think that was the long and short of it. He was like, let's take the smallest social group that you can and see what happens when you subject it to incredible stress. Well, yeah. And well, it really does feel like it plays into that, like the torture aspect, like the breaking of a person, right? Like, can we take a dyad to use this word? Can we take like just one-on-one -on -one, and can we break a person just with another person? <laughs> Ugh. And the answer is you, you maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> you you probably maybe you can, but you shouldn't. Wow. Yeah. Um David continues to say that he got his hands on a transcript of one of the sessions and the acting research assistant focused a conversation on Ted's beard and called it stupid. Um That's mean. Apparently, when he was on campus, Ted would kind of like occasionally say hello to one of the researchers and they would just flat ignore him. I'm assuming they were directed to not build relationships with any of the participants outside of the study, mm -hmm. which kind of makes sense. You don't want to affect a study on a relationship. By... Yeah. Um, 
But also, Ted is like 17 years old, a sophomore at Harvard, halfway across the country. And I can see how this was a turning point to him potentially building more interpersonal relationships. And he's taught that he will get berated and he will get ignored. Well, also consider the fact that, like, he did the study for three years. These were probably people he spent the most amount of time with. Like, Andy was young and he didn't know anyone there because he was across the country. And he couldn't actually build a social relationship with them because they were instructed not to and they'd ignore him if he tried. Like, I don't think I'd be okay if those were my circumstances. Yeah, me either. I think a lot about myself and just, like, I think that being the one, like, overachiever, bookworm nerd in a place that is heavily working class always leads itself to this, where people are like, you should go to Harvard, you should go to Yale, because those are the names that we all know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I did not apply to Harvard because the fee alone was $100, and I was just like, A, we can't afford that, really, on top of all these other ones, and B, imagine how expensive it is. And I did not know at the time that, for the most part, Ivy League universities, if your family, your household is making under, like, usually sixty to $90,000, you just get to go. And I frequently wonder about the alternate pathway in which I applied and got in and went to Harvard for free, but also I had to, like, flop into the East Coast (laughs) cardigan, button-down wearing, like... I just yeah. I can't imagine yeah. it was already pretty surprising to attend a private college when I didn't really have a concept of what that meant and like yeah learn that we had tennis courts which I don't know if I had really seen in person because that's a rich white people sport <laughs> um, our high school had tennis courts because they taught a tennis and badminton gym class we did that over um, the volleyball net inside on the basketball court. <laughs> like, I remember <laughs> playing badminton in gym. But... Yeah. Yeah. Like the thing is like outside of high school, I don't even know barely. Well, I guess there's the park, but like you don't see I, a lot of tennis around. <laughs> we have, we do have a park that has tennis courts too, but I don't think I would know anything about tennis if I hadn't been introduced to it in high school. Cause this is a very blue collar area too. I don't know. Anyone I know that plays tennis learned through high school. (laughs) Yeah, uh, this is just one long defensive podcast episode about me wondering (laughs) what could have gone wrong in my life uh, in a worse way. But so one thing that I did not do uh, that oddly, oddly to me, both of the brothers spent a long time living pretty independently. Uh, David writes about being a quote-unquote desert hermit um, in West Texas. And I think most of us know that Ted eventually, along with David, bought a plot of land in Montana, built his own cabin. I brought that up before. It's like a one-room cabin. Mm-hmm. Has what yeah. you need, doesn't have what you don't need. Um, and it was a surprise to everybody's family when David kind of reintegrated um he had known his now wife linda for a very long time and kind of would like he talks about how when he was in west texas living by himself he would kind of just like every day take a moment to reflect and i think he was kind of pre the secret the secreting Mm -hmm. and just thinking like but what about linda what about linda she's really nice he says 
I wandered into the West Texas wilderness where I spent the next eight years living as a desert hermit. Every day, at least once, I spoke Linda's name under my breath like a secret mantra. Years later, after we had married, I asked a therapist whether my infatuation with Linda had been psychologically unhealthy. She said that it would have been unhealthy if Linda had not eventually reciprocated my love. <laughs> so he... that's, that's weird. Like, that's that's a kind of like a very retroactive justification for like obsessing about a woman out in the woods by yourself for a very long time. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I, uh, I kind of get that answer, but yes, it is very <laughs> reciprocal. Like, I, I feel like the better answer is like, in the moment, that probably wasn't the healthiest thing. Um, it would have been unhealthy completely if she was never and in, not interested at all. Yeah, but like, it turned out okay for you, so I guess it's fine. There's like not much to do about it now. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Yeah, that is, um, that is interesting though. It struck me, and I think that David is a very good writer, and I wonder if he was setting this up subliminally. But I got an overwhelming feeling that like David's book is very tragic in a very classical sense, in which it feels like every person in it has a destiny that we know we don't want to play out the way that it does, but it does. And to me, the two brothers are kind of like falling together and falling back apart and falling together and falling back apart over and over through their lives. And it's interesting and very, it, it's very meaningful to me that at some point David says, you know, um, I think I am going to reach back out to Linda and <laughs> The way that he portrays this is like they had known each other for a very long time and he asks her at some point, you know, why did it take you so long to tell me that you loved me and for us to get together? And she says, Dave, you always had a bad haircut. <laughs> and then more seriously, she says, you never came out and said that you loved me. And he argues that he did. And they look back over all these letters they would write to each other back and forth in college. And he never really did say it, but they get married and he decides to like move, I think, to New York. And they get married. And this is the point at which uh, Ted, on the other hand, says that he's like being manipulated by Linda. He's betraying Ted. Their dad is like, hey, we never thought you would integrate back into society. They kind of just seemingly assumed that both boys would like go off and live by themselves the rest of their lives. And to the dad's credit, like it seems like he really empowered them to find food in the woods and wanted them to be like boy scouts you know like this was the time of like i'm yeah. going to teach you to We're be self-sufficient preservation self-sufficiency yeah and i think that for a long time that was fine that was kind of the goal like both boys had gotten an education they were very self-sufficient they were doing great and everything's okay until uh sometime in the 70s to 80s what i have been able to piece together from interviews is that around the 80s Ted had already been very angry and in many, many articles about it, there'll be this one quote of his that talks about how he had this beautiful place outside his cabin. He loved it. Frankly, he paints the early years of living in his cabin as like amazing. He says, I would ride my bike into town. I would get things like flour that I couldn't grow because we were too far north and I would just take walks and my mind always felt at ease and I felt great. But at some point, inevitably, they put like a highway through chunk of land where he used to like to go and there was a waterfall I think and more and more people keep moving in and uh, rather than falling back into society and and doing all right 
something else that a lot of places bring up is that at some point he came back to work in a cushion filler factory that I think both their dad and David were working at. He goes on two dates with a colleague and she says like, hey, this isn't for me. I don't think we have a lot in common. And he posts up many copies of a rude limerick about her. And again, Mm. podcasts bring this up as like, he was antisocial even then. And I'm like, I have a list of names for the FBI then, because if every man who wrote something really disgusting about me for not going out with them is the name of every man on Tinder, whoever responds with like horrible, volatile insults when a woman goes to pee for five minutes and doesn't respond. Yeah. Um, And again, I don't present this as like, it's fine. I obviously don't think that's fine. I think it's deeply maladjusted, but I think it's indicative of the ways that we are willing to accept certain types of behaviors until we can kind of back explain something worse. When in reality, I do think we should look at this as an antisocial behavior. I think it is antisocial to go on two dates with someone, have that person say that they don't want to have a third date, and to post up rude poetry about them in your workplace where you both work yeah Um, it's it's not a healthy response to rejection at the very least wherever that response comes from it's not a healthy way to deal with rejection and naturally that woman at some point early on after ted's arrest was interviewed and of course she's like there was some article that i can't recall exactly which one at this point but says like she also scoffed at the indication that if she hadn't rejected him he wouldn't have killed those people and i'm like where have i heard that before oh my god yeah like that's no (laughs) the reason she rejected him might have been like you know it's related to the reason these things happened there was you know she said that she just didn't think they had a lot in common like yeah Oh well. <laughs> um, if you can blame, if you can blame anyone, oh God, it's just such a crazy thought. Like, blame you know, the person committing the acts. Don't blame any everyone else around them. Yeah. It's it. It's the the whole like horrible dress code policy of like, well, girls can't wear tank tops because you'll distract the boys, or the boys will do bad things because you're wearing a tank top. Okay, let's teach the guys that like. They should focus on schoolwork at school and not worry about what other people are wearing. Like, what the fuck? Um, if, don't, if, don't blame everyone around a person for a person's action. It's so detrimental. If I could seize on something that is, like, emerging in this story, and, like, I think emerges in a lot of these stories, I think that there is a place to look at all of these events in a, in a person's life and see our, like, after-the-fact desire to craft narrative i think narrative is like the the thing here that like pulls all these little pieces of his life together in a way that is deceptive you know what i mean like there's i agree and i think that's a very succinct way of saying what i'm trying to get at through the entirety of the episode (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i mean not to like jump ahead on things there but like you're i'm seeing you know at all these different turns like it'd be much easier and uh, literary almost, in a sense, to, uh, you know, zero in on certain aspects uh, of, of his life that feel like they belong more in a story. Uh, that are there, like, the real, the causes for, like, you know, why a person becomes the way that they are. But I, I do think reality is always more complex than that. And it's something we keep seeing here. Yeah. 
Um, I would say that I think I think a lot of previous discussion around Ted Kaczynski and around his writing and around his acts really kind of tries to pick at, well, he was very antisocial. He never talked to anybody. He was this quiet kid that had his nose in a book and he got sent off to school too early. And also he hated women. And so he hated everybody and he killed a lot of people. And then he wrote this unhinged manifesto. And I would argue, I guess, if I'm going to make any argument about his, his writing, I will say that I do think he kind of bookends industrial society and its future with a start and a finish that talks about leftists. You might remember that I brought up that one statement yeah, yeah, to yeah, run yeah. Matthew too. And I do believe that it's defensive that he brings up the two main problems with what at the time was current leftism were feelings of inferiority and over-socialization. And I guess I would question if he maybe had low self-esteem and felt under-socialized and was capable of acknowledging something was wrong with his level of social interaction. And he turns this into saying, um, one of the most important means by which our society socializes children is by making them feel ashamed of behavior or speech that is contrary to society's expectations. If this is overdone or if a particular child is especially susceptible to such feelings, he ends by feeling ashamed of himself. And he writes a lot with the argument that leftists are like upper middle class, over socialized people that have taken on all of these statements about society and like internalized them too much. And I can see how kind of the top level story really illustrates a lot of this bookend component of this writing. Yeah, um, makes sense. However, I guess I am still making the argument that the middle chunks of it contain a lot of conversation about, uh, so the idea of a power process, uh, the idea that human beings have a drive to do something that is worthwhile and Maybe that used to be that we would have to go out and we would have to spend a day hunting with other people and find something that could feed us. And we would feel satisfaction because we brought home food and we came home safely and things like that. And he presents the argument that instead what we have now are what he calls surrogate activities. And the idea being we don't spend any time really caring for ourselves um, for the most part. Like we have clean water. We can just turn it on in the tap. We have food. We can just go get it at the store. So we fulfill ourselves by doing what he calls surrogate activities that are anything that you wouldn't really need to do in a primitive time and that you probably wouldn't still want to do after you expended some amount of effort surviving. Mm -hmm. So for example, playing guitar might still be an activity that one of us like, like to do. If we like music, we would go out, we would collect our berries, we would have our food and we would want to play music. But going to an office job to check the new PDFs to see if they're better than the last version of PDF. Probably not something that somebody would still want to do. Right. <laughs> I, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I also want to point out, um, so he has a response to this years later. A lot of people, I guess, wrote in and said, you didn't come up with anything new. And he says that wasn't the point. The point was he calls specifically for a revolution that overthrows technology, period. That's his take. He doesn't frame it as like a critique of capitalism that we are doing these things. Um, I think that I've read a lot of other writings, especially lately, 
I'm just saying, I've seen a lot of like guillotine jokes lately on Twitter. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he references the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution as things that he looked to win form of his. Um, and he says, I made the choice to write and say that we need a full revolution. I never said that this was a new idea. And some fanfare is sometimes made of the book, The Technological Society, being found in his cabin. That is a very old and very well-respected philosophical text. I did not get all the way through it to to give you the summary. You'll have to go to Cliff Notes. I'm sorry. It's like 400 pages long, and it's translated from French. I find it very interesting that Aldous Huxley was instrumental in getting it translated because he was like, I absolutely need to see this translated and, and shared. Wow. I didn't know that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher the author's name because it's Jacques Ellul. E-L-L-U-L. He's obviously French. Okay. <laughs> and um, yeah, I guess if anything, the short version of my take is he actually wrote a new iteration of a pretty well-trodden philosophy around our current society, around the pointlessness of a lot of jobs that we have, the pointlessness of a lot of activities that we undertake. But he is unusual, and I would say I disagree with feeling that the only way to deal with this is to basically eradicate all technology that we've had since the Industrial Revolution by way of another revolution taken after the French and Russian ones. And he does acknowledge that this means that a lot of people will probably starve. A lot of people will die. And this is where you might remember, he says, one cannot eat your cake and have it too, Mm. which is one of the phrases that was picked on because he phrased it that way. You can't have Mm -hmm. your cake and eat it too is how most of us would say it. Yeah. Um, So that was part of what helped identify him uh, when doing the linguistic analysis. Oh, okay. So some, oh, okay. That I didn't actually know that, but it's like, that's a thing that like is very specific. Most people wouldn't swap those around. Yeah. And taken in conjunction with some other just styles of his writing. He wrote it all on a typewriter. Um, It's also very dense writing. Like if anybody decides to pick up a copy of this, it is tough to get through. The paragraphs are numbered. It's very clearly like sixties era academic writing, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um. Lots of footnotes and lots of very startling phrases, like especially when he's talking about leftists. He talks at one point about how it's bad that in our current society we're doing affirmative action. And you're like, whiplash. Whoa. Ooh. OK, hold on. bud. <laughs> and then he goes I, I on to say I was <laughs> <laughs> he goes on to say that. His take on this is we're trying to basically just homogenize everybody into this upper middle class white, like everybody should go to graduate school. Everybody should have a white collar job. Everybody should do these things. And in a lot of the footnotes, as you continue, you can see that he actually seems to agree on like racial and sexual equality, but he will he comes across as like feminism is stupid and you're like, excuse me. And he's like, no, 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 no. I don't mean that it's stupid to believe that the sexes are equal. It's stupid that we have this movement right now that's doing X, Y, Z. And you're like, uh, okay. <laughs> well, you... Maybe could have phrased that better. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it seems like, uh, it seems like he's not afraid of saying the thing that will get the knee jerk reaction only to then go on and like clarify. Right. Yeah, in a footnote. Yeah. In yeah. one of his million and sometimes footnotes. in extra footnotes like there'll be a footnote and then an, a, a, an update to the footnote and you're like oh <laughs> this is tough to read 
you know, you never really hear about a living manifesto. They kind of tend to be one and done. <laughs> this one was updated through 2016, so wow. you can. That's amazing. You can get nearly up to date updates, I guess. <laughs> wow. Uh, does it, does it strike you that like uh, the kind of stuff that he was writing about and like the societal problems that were like not even necessarily his new ideas about societal problems, but like does it strike you that there's something really perennial about that and you could drop yourself at almost any time in history and complain about this you know confounded water wheel that's ruining our lives? <laughs> um. Yes and no. I would say that I probably haven't done enough anthropology study to really speak at a long length, but like mm -hmm. this was written in 1995 principally. And a lot of the phrases do really strike me as something that I would believe somebody hearing to say. Um, mm -hmm. I think that it's very interesting to see how many subcomponents of this are things that I would not be shocked to see somebody that I follow on Instagram say. Yeah. Not in the same phrasing, not in the same yeah, like Maybe framing. not all in combination, but like individually, right. the ideas aren't that far off from things you hear about. Yes. Um, and I think the big framing that's missing that I haven't really seen as much is that he pins all of this on the concept of technology. He basically says like any industrial society... It's like if you give a mouse a cookie, like if you give man a Model T Ford, he's going to make it go faster. And then we're going to go until we wind up with Teslas and we're going to try to build rockets and we're going to try to go to other planets. And so we should just wipe everything off the map and go back to being in small groups that all look after each other, don't have technology. Whereas a lot of people that I interact with or see or read frame it more as a capitalism issue. Mm. And... I think it is unique, at least to what I've read, to blame all technology. Now, The Technological Society, that book that I talked about, does this as well. Um, Ted Kaczynski doesn't really care for that too much because he says the one critique that he seems to have of it is that Jacques Ellul kind of just like seems to think that at some point spontaneously society will realize we're doing bad things and we have to change all of this, whereas Ted's take is we should forcibly overthrow and smash all of technological society in some way. Um, <laughs> well, like, I, okay, it strikes me that a lot of this stuff is very easy to uh, come around to if you're the kind of person who already knows how to hunt for a living, has land, doesn't live in a densely <laughs> right, populated area, right. uh, doesn't require or depend on mass agriculture to support you, uh, are living so in a climate that can sustain you. Like, there's a bajillion reasons that one guy in yep. the woods in Montana might feel like we should all put down our computers. I was going to say, it's like really self-serving, right? It's like, well, the things I already know how to do and the way I'm already living is obviously the right way. And j everyone else just has to catch up, get on my level. <laughs> I think that's a very valid criticism. And I thought that to myself a lot as I was reading. Um, he does kind of head nod to this but it is pretty dismissive um well i think i think you know you pointed out that he's very defensive and i think that goes hand in hand with it like he he is being very defensive and he's setting himself up as like well i the way i do things is the right way and if you're a defensive person it just seems like an extension of that ideology yeah like, of course you think the way you're thinking. 
the way you do things is the right way. We all think that. We all do, yeah. Uh, I guess my my closing point would be I wanted also to kind of compare and contrast. I had not read at the time the book Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. I wanted to know how much that might uh, be in alignment with this concept of like surrogate activities. I would say that I found Bullshit Jobs kind of like an oddly dry read. I think the original essay that spawned the book really makes all of the big points and the book is just trying to give a lot of examples to expand on it. Some of the examples are very interesting. And if you are interested, it might be worth a read to you. Yeah. Well, I, is, that, uh, is it exactly what it sounds like? It's just like, here's, here's work that lacks what we might call like you know that something that gives you meaning or purpose or you know yeah one of the examples that stood out the most to me both as like resonating with me in particular and in kind of aligning with all three things happening here like the manifesto my brain and bullshit jobs is he writes about somebody who wrote in and said i have a bullshit job and by the way one of his main points is like the idea that everybody who has a bullshit job immediately knows that they have a bullshit job. Like if you ask them, hey, is your job bullshit? They're going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, super bullshit. <laughs> <That's> a... <laughs> and I think we've all had those jobs, right? Yeah, like that that, that checks out to me. <laughs> so this one example is a guy who writes in and he's like, I was basically hired to sit around. Like it seems like the people who work here and do work kind of just wanted somebody to sit at a desk to like have a person under them. And I'm not really given enough to do. So I spent a long time trying to find things to do. And then I spent a while trying to just mooch everything that I could. So I was like, oh, I have to go out to this site to talk to this person. And then I would go there for a week and dick around the whole time. And the author writes about how, like, it's important to him that the person who wrote in is somebody who also came from, I think, a working class family. And he, so this is like his first kind of white collar work. And he posits that if somebody else were in this job who came from like a more middle to upper class upbringing, maybe a family that had worked white collar jobs, this isn't probably to them as much of a bullshit job because they would think, great, I can network, I can have lots of meetings with people, I can work here for a year or two, and then I can go get a really sweet paying job that's also probably kind of bullshit, but might be more interesting. But this guy basically just descends into goofing off as much and trying to get fired and like coming into work <laughs> drunk at one in the afternoon and things like that. And I, I found that an interesting, um, it doesn't quite tie everything together, but it does to me create like this pathway of just the many levels in which I would agree that our society is malformed. Um, <laughs> but contrary to Ted Kaczynski, I dream of the luxury gay space capitalism of like mm -hmm. Roddenberry Star Trek, where we are globalized and everybody is looked after and we have like a universal basic income. And so we can all be doing art and we can all be doing yes. things that I think fulfill us because we're yeah. not working super hard to sustain ourselves, as opposed to this idea where we are all fulfilled by sustaining ourselves. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point because, like, not everyone, even if everyone knew, like, self-sufficiency and these self-preservational skills, even if everyone was taught that, not everyone is going to get out of it what Kaczynski got out of it, what other people get out of it. Like, it's it's not a one-size-fits-all society. We're not fed, like, we're not fulfilled by the same things. So you can 
sit there and say that everyone should go back to doing things the way that you do them, which you think is the right way. But like you would still have problems in society because people would still be unfulfilled and they might be maybe they would be too tired to complain about it at the end of the day because they spend all day trying not to die and feed themselves. But like it wouldn't be good for everybody. Yeah, right. I think um, another book by David Graeber, I hope I'm saying his name right. Somebody's probably screaming at this podcast, but... Yeah, it's okay. Nobody listens. <laughs> he also wrote a book titled Debt, The First 5,000 Years, and I will say this rocked my world. It's a very long book. Parts of it are dry, but I think that book hits a lot of the same themes in talking about our perception of debt. And so for right now, many people would say like, well, if you don't pay your debts, you're a scumbag. We have to pay our debts. That's a nice thing to do. But he paints this picture where for a long time, we lived in these smaller groups that Ted Kaczynski writes about. And so we functioned as those smaller groups. And so this idea that like without paper money, we'd have to bring a barrel full of stuff to the market to find something frantically that somebody would want to trade us for, for the thing that we need, didn't really exist. It's like this backwards construct because we see it as money now and how useful it is. But at the time, it was more like, hey, Bob, I need wood because I'm trying to construct a house for my family because I have obtained a partner and we are going to have a child. And then rather than like, what of these things that I can give you for the wood would you take? It's kind of like, all right, does anybody have wood? Bob finds out, yeah, George has wood. George just gives you the wood because it's extra wood. And at some point the main person is going to have something else that he needs. And we functioned, as far as I can tell and understand from this book, as more of a group unit. Um, oh, it's like, it's he backs like it up a... with a yeah, lot of it was, evidence, it was like obviously. Kind of a barter system, but but built off of the idea that like, okay, well, I help you now because I have what you need and you'll help me later because we keep each other alive and that's what we do. And not because like you owe me. It strikes me that it's like trade and barter with a tab. Like we we kind of like it's not everything being immediately transactional. There is like this community yeah. aspect to like realizing that it benefits you just to help people because they're going to help you. Which well, seems... and then we twisted that into the credit score system that we have now because for a while we kind of had the tab. Like we had paper money, but we also knew that a farmer was probably going to have money at the end of harvest season and he didn't have it right now. Right. So your local store would write down your name and run your tab mm -hmm. and then you would pay them back. And then the entire concept of a credit score grew out of like, what if we all share these lists and we tell people if people don't pay us back when they're supposed to. And now we have what is, in my opinion, a very warped system <laughs> where... I mean, not paying a bill on time one time because you forgot about it can tank your ability to like finance your car more effectively and do it for seven years. And by the way, yeah. debt the first 5,000 years will tell you an enlightening story about why it's every seven years that blew my mind. And I won't spoil it for you. Oh, I really? Think people should read the book. There's a reason for yeah, that? Yeah, that's interesting. There's a loose reason. There's at least a correlation. I don't know if he spells it out as exactly the reason, but he talks about the concept of jubilee occurring every seven years. And uh, I think it's very interesting that a lot of our other financial system is built off the idea of things kind of falling off after seven years. You don't have to keep your IRS records for more than seven years, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, my God. Um, I, yeah. Also, the credit score thing makes me so mad and so much of how credit and credit cards function in general are so messed up that ugh. 
Well, there. I, um, I could rage. I could rage about it for a long time. I. I think. But, I think the concept yeah. is good, but it but it lacks context, right? So like, it's not necessarily a bad idea for us to kind of like. Well, it's used as a weapon. It, yeah. It's used as a weapon. It's it it's a good concept if it's not weaponized against us and and loans and credit and keeping score is is used as a means of financial control yeah and and not as a way to like actually help us which is the way it's sold to us well i mean i I think if you take like something like like uh like uh, to refer back to the first example you know there might be like your your community might be well aware of some really good reasons why you couldn't contribute or help. And that information is accessible to them because they live with you. They have context for your life. Whereas, you know, like the credit system is just big and blind and machine and it doesn't, it doesn't take human consideration into effect. And, and, and then it's, it's used punitively and there's all kinds of reasons it just doesn't work as well. Well, and then right. how do we ever stop the cycle when it is used punitively? So somebody who already struggles to pay their bills and it's reflected in their credit score gets a much worse term for literally anything in their life. Mm-hmm. And many people yeah. will counter and be like, well, you shouldn't buy what you can't afford. And I'm like, I would like to invite you to the life of any working class person <laughs> because that's not how yeah. it works here. Um, but, you know, then you get like you get higher interest rates on your loan and the loan has to go for further and there are steeper penalties for it. So inevitably you cannot mess up at all Mm -hmm. or else it will get even worse. And then your credit score will get even worse. And then it's just compounding. And uh... yeah, it's designed to compound misery is what it is. (laughs) So, so I, I I have an anecdote. So my, my mom had moved out that when she first, my parents separated, she moved into an apartment she had a credit card for like a store. It was like Old Navy or something. And she had been paying fine. She kept up on her bills. And then she missed the payment. And the reason she missed the payment was because the money was there. Well, it should have been in my mom's bank account. But apparently when she deposited the money, the bank actually put it in the wrong person's account. And so the money wasn't there even though it was my mom's and my mom got this straightened out by the bank. She didn't even know it was a problem until she found out from the credit card company that she hadn't paid them. She had written a check and it didn't go through. So this was not my mom's fault at all, right? Like she deposited the money, the bank messed up. Well, because the money wasn't there and the check essentially bounced through no fault of hers, her credit card was immediately canceled and that, all of that entire balance was immediately due. They did not care about the mitigating circumstances. They did not care that it was not her fault. And uh, then she was even more debt because, and it went into collections through no fault of her own and nobody cared and she was punished for it. And yeah. how do you resolve that as one person? I think that's the undercurrent to all of these things that I've brought up is just our compulsive desire as a society to instead of looking at a structure or a system and the way that the system is designed to say that one person is garbage. Yeah. 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 You're right. And, and, the, di- and the dismissive thing to say would be like, well, if she was in such dire straits, why did she even have that credit card? Why and, didn't and she pay off her balance immediately when charging on it? Why did she even right. carry one? Because that's yeah. the thing I keep hearing now is that all of us should have rewards credit cards. And I, 
to be fair, I agree with the system if it works for you, but I have an issue with it being given as blanket statements and blanket advice for everyone. Mm -hmm. What I do is I pay for things on my credit card and then I pay it off usually twice a month because I get paranoid about paying it. And then you can get things like points back. But for people who have struggled in the past with like impulse control, for people who have struggled to maintain bank and credit accounts, because there's a massive amount of America right now that doesn't have a bank account for one reason or another and things like that, like this is a great recommendation if you can do it. And it's spouted as like, well, if you're not doing it this way, you're stupid. Either you're stupid because you're paying cash when you could be getting points, or you're stupid because you kept a balance you know, on your credit card. There is like no group that it is more like uh, acceptable to fucking condescend to than the poor. Like oh that, my God. it really does piss me it, off. There's so much advice from people who don't have these struggles. There's so but much advice. If you advice stopped buying from Starbucks, people, both of you right? would be rich. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> second house by now. Um, it, 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 we don't even buy Starbucks. <laughs> well, exactly. Nobody that's looking for this advice or help buys Starbucks. Yeah. The, yeah, the, there's so much advice from people with money to people without money. And it's, it it's so misguided and the opposite conversation never gets to happen. Like it's never a conversation. It's a lecture, right? It's an article. It's never like a sit down, like, Hey, this is what I think you could do that might help you. And then the, the person without the money going like, okay, well, yeah, like I would love to do that, but this is why it doesn't work and have that dialogue actually be heard and received this is all why I half jokingly said that I wanted to do a middle segment that was just me screaming at the <laughs> listeners not to listen to things that tell you to day trade on apps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or more accurately, I would say if you do, you should approach it just like gambling and only put in what money you can afford and definitely right. don't just hook it up to your bank. Make distinct transfers for the amount of money that you're willing to lose in it. Right. I use I use an app for stocks and I don't do it extensively. I transfer $5 a week, and then I use that to buy the things I want to buy, knowing that that money could go away, and $5 a week isn't that big a deal. I am just so angry at every think piece and article and, like, person on Twitter who's like, you could be doing this right now. It only takes a few dollars, and then they always cite that at some point in the past, XYZ industry was basically printing money to anybody who held their stock. And I'm like, great, thank you. If I could go back nine months and buy Apple stock, I'd be great. But that's not what I can do right now. Oh God! Yeah, it, 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 it. Everyone always wants to give generalized blanket advice, and it it doesn't work for all the reasons we've been yelling well, at this guy moreover, about. I would underline that it doesn't work because it doesn't serve the system for it to work. It doesn't right, serve our current right, right, economic right. system and our financial system for a bunch of poor and working class people to make a stupid amount of money off of day trading stocks. Yep. So why would that ever happen? Well, also, <laughs> right. like to speak even more generally, it doesn't serve our current system for the people who are poor to not be poor anymore. Like yep. we don't really talk about the fact that like we're keeping people poor on purpose and making money off of it and then telling them that they shouldn't be poor and this is what they should do to not be poor. Well, you know, like the sheer Have you amount... thought about not being poor? <laughs> Have you tried being less poor? 
let me sell you this solution to so you could be less because it just reminds me of this like uh like background joke on an episode of mr show where like david cross is on a poster leaning against a car drinking a beer and under- he's giving the thumbs up and underneath it says being poor sucks <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway yeah God, all this stuff pisses me off so much. I'm just so angry all of the time. But yeah. but no, these are these are so huge. big mood. Yeah, well, yeah. The thing is, <laughs> sorry. Obviously, he was wrong. But I get it. It if I didn't have people to like bounce ideas off of and just sat alone, like boiling all the time and and stirring these negative thoughts around that would be very bad for me i think (laughs) it'd be very bad for a lot of us but no there are huge huge systemic issues and not just like the financial ones not just like poverty and working poor and all of that there's huge systemic issues in every area of our lives and we don't like it sure we talk about it but the bigger we don't discuss it because it's easier to place the blame on the one than on the system because what do you have to do to change or overthrow a system right and we're back to ted kaczynski like (laughs) (laughs) yeah like these that's a big scary topic and that's a big scary change and so it's easier to be like well they just shouldn't have done that as an individual than then okay well if we keep maybe poking the at system individuals we stop like we deflect the idea that all of those individuals right. taken together are actually the majority and i think a healthier way to frame this is to talk about unionizing and to talk about you know not yes. to not to defend ted kaczynski that's not what this is about i'm not holding up like he was right and we should do this i'm saying <laughs> he made some points that are also made by many other philosophers about issues that are inherent and in fact support and uphold our current system. And if you'd like to look at that as like capitalism, if you'd like to look at that as like white supremacy, I think that they all share underpinnings because they are all in fact systems that are upheld basically by the majority of people feeling as though they are one individual person who can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Right. And supported it's- by continuing to not talk about the system and instead talking about the failures of that individual person. Yeah. yeah, his his actions were wrong, but the reasons, like his feelings about it, the reasons he he got to the place he was are almost universal in some ways. Yeah, there's. I guess, it's... like oh, I said, ahead. like I tried to say earlier, is like, I'm not trying to justify his behaviors. I'm not trying to justify him as a person or his choices. I am trying to say that his writing was not like a deranged person's scribblings, that yeah. he just threw at the Washington Post for no reason. Um, I And I think it's very important to make distinctions between, uh, I don't know exactly what, what to make them between, but um, no, yeah. I think there is a lot of value to the system in kind of sweeping things like that under the rug, the same way that I grew up learning that I thought the Black Panthers were like, a domestic terrorist organization right. that never did anything good. And right. now we have a lot of conversations and a lot of books and a lot of podcasts about how they did things like set up sickle cell clinics because primarily black people 
are subject to sickle cell anemia. They felt that the medical system was inherently very racist, and we have a lot of evidence that it is, at least in the yeah. U.S., and, and, also, and things like that. And also, they absolutely were being targeted by the government, and there absolutely was a conspiracy by our government to make people think that they were a domestic terrorist organization, and they members of of Black Panthers were murdered by members of the government. Mm -hmm. I don't feel equipped to tell people about the Black Panthers. Um, for some reason, I've crossed a lot of paths with oh. Ted Kaczynski and conversation and reading and things like that. So I felt a little more equipped to talk about that one. Again, not drawing a, a comparison to say like these two are equal, but uh, that was the one that I... You okay? No, I, I was ranting and then uh, my... I, I was actually, I was going to say something because like Kirsten, you started like, like, like as if that was the natural end of what she was saying, which it kind of was, it kind of like sort of was making its way there. And then I just hear her in the other room like... I don't know where I left off at as far as where you heard me, but... Oh God. Yeah. I just, I was saying that... Um... Once again, I'm not seeking to, like I said, like, I'm not seeking to draw a comparison and say, like, these two are equally valid or they're not. I, I leave that up to the reader and I chose this as a jumping off point because it's what I feel most equipped to talk about as opposed to I don't feel that I should give people the history of the Black Panthers. I don't feel that I should give people the history of, like, the U.S. government versus MLK Jr. or things like that. Um, but I did feel equipped to read Ted and David Kuzinski's writings and talk about those. Uh, I think you did Here a really good job. I, I, I'm actually yeah. very, I'm actually very glad that what we focused on was not, you know, bombs and 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 manhunting and all that. And instead, well, everyone knows, like everyone knows, the bigger point of what happened. Everyone's heard that story. I, I think discussing it in this way is, you're right. Like there is a gap in that. It wasn't. It wasn't. You don't hear this part of it. Yeah. I think uh... there's an entire Netflix show about how hard the FBI worked. And I, <laughs> I am it's a person who started my career, like with the goal of being an FBI agent, frankly, I just wanted to be Dana Scully. And so yeah. I say that with a lot of respect and like, that is their job. Um, but also like, that's their job. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we, we tell that story over and over again, the same way we tell the story of like the madman who, killed many people to get his crazy writings printed over and over again. And I, I don't feel that either is a true and complete telling of a situation. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I, you know, not to, not to, it's, it's, I don't think it's necessarily totally a degree of sympathy that's conveyed here, but like, I think a degree of understanding is important, you know, see, seeing again, seeing someone who did horrible unspeakable like just horrible things seeing them as a human isn't a bad thing it it brings us to a level of understanding and maybe addressing existing issues is the important thing the systemic problems are still as important as they were when he committed the his acts like understanding people are humans and why they do what they do is incredibly important i think um, 
that's probably a good place for us to take uh, our leave. We are uh, we went really long today. <laughs> yeah, we sorry. Have, no, I'm glad. I'm glad because I that's like uh, you know when, once I realized we were talking about Ted Kaczynski, I didn't realize what direction we were going, and it ended up being like a very, very much more uh, interesting to me than like I said, just the the story everyone knows. So. I just hope that it's coherent when put together when people listen to it because I had I have had so many thoughts stewing in my brain and I have been in such a like dour mood because you and everyone it's, else. it's just all sitting in there and they're like well yeah me and everybody else but I have my brain full of you know the Unabomber manifesto <laughs> yeah right you have the the extra layer of of uh, the Unabomber's manifesto really does that's something that's a weight to carry around. Yeah, I'm happy to have lifted some of it off by sharing it, and I hope I did it in a coherent manner that doesn't make it sound like I'm trying to say anything awful. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all made the point multiple times. I, I, I think it came across just fine. Uh, I think I came out of this uh, you know, pretty pro-Kaczynski. I think you've radicalized me <laughs> in a way that like, I'm happy with. Uh, so that's good. <laughs> Dave is currently building a hut in the backyard as we speak. His bare hands. <laughs> Just digging a mud pit think, to live in. I think especially now we can all occasionally relate to the desire to live in the woods and never have to interact with anyone ever again. <laughs> it, it looks yep. better every day. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's say, uh, thank you, uh, to those, to the, the few people that are listening. Uh, <laughs> thank you for listening to Goose Chase. Goose Chase. And, uh, thanks Kirsten for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me a second time. I appreciate it. There will be a third if you uh, are interested. I might need to take a break because I have put a lot of stuff in my brain, but I am always interested to read too many things about was, complicated things. I was and also then going to say, to you you also don't have to read upwards of two books for every topic you do. <laughs> it is your choice to do so, but don't think you have to uphold that personal standard you set. <laughs> a fair point. Uh, all right. So we'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another episode. Thanks again, Kirsten. Thank you out there for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Goose Chase. We are Goose Chase Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. On Twitter, our handle is at GooseChasePod, and our website is www.GooseChasePodcast.com. If you have any topics you'd like us to research, please email us at GooseChasePodcast at gmail.com. If you like what we do on the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play. Want to go on a goose chase? Ooh, yes. 